Hey ho, my lovelies! Welcome back to another episode of Did You Read the Book? A comparative podcast where movie buffs and bookworms come together to talk about stories and their adaptations that we love, hate, or love to hate. I am your host, Aaron Palmer, and once again, joined by the very lovely Dan the Man. Hello, Dan. Thank you so much for having me again. Yes, welcome back! (laughs) I'm excited because what other topics could we possibly be talking about but yet more Alan Moore? (laughs) Yes! Yes, this will this never is stop, that... won't stop. <laughs> oh, this is one that's been coming for a while, I feel like. Ooh, uh, yes, <laughs> um, absolutely. Um, and I am so happy that you are just my new, like, sit in Alan Moore. What, what, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Like, uh, representative? <laughs> well, I, do, so, I kind you. of look like him. I have long hair and a beard. And, and kind of Minus a the man. epic British voice. But, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll, no, we I won't don't slight you for that. Like, <laughs> I don't talk like this all the time. Uh, could you? I would pay you <laughs> to talk like that forever. Please, thanks. Okay. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Well, Mr. Dan, we're back with more Alan Moore. What are we talking about today? Well, uh, today the source material we are discussing is none other than Watchmen by Alan Moore and artist Dave Gibbons, uh, written publication dates 1986 to 1987. Mm-hmm. This is, he would object to these terms, but it is widely considered to be the apex of his career as a comic <laughs> writer. I feel like he argues with everyone over pretty much everything. So that that all lines up. But yeah. <laughs> that is another thing I have in common with him. If you have an opinion, I have the opposite opinion. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why you're on the show, Dan. Because <laughs> I need discourse. <laughs> so yeah, that's what we're talking about. Watchmen, Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons, 1986, yes. 1987. Yes, yes, yes. And on the flip side, we've got... The film called Watchmen, which was directed by Mr. Zack Snyder in 2009, and it's got a pretty stellar cast, which I feel like this is like a theme with most of Alan Moore, like renditions in film form, that maybe the film's not as good, but dang, do they pick good casting. (laughs) I know, it's it's like the material itself. It's like the material itself is actually good. So people get excited about it, and then the scripts don't necessarily live up to- And then they don't quite hit the mark but we'll get there yeah so it's got billy crudup malin ackerman matthew good patrick wilson jackie earl haley carla gugino and jeffrey dean morgan and many 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 other people it's real good cast guys i kind of it blew my mind how (laughs) how good this cast is and they all look like nothing like what they actually look like (laughs) they actually look we'll get into it but they actually look like they just like pulled people out of the comic book and put them on the screen for some of these characters i'm like damn they did a good job but oh yeah well especially i know we're gonna say this a lot but jackie earl haley as rorschach oh my god he is like the most and i mean this with all respect He is the most perfect rat man. I've oh ever my god, seen. yes. Yes. Stellar. <laughs> like that he beautiful. by far is the best <laughs> casting. He's beautiful and disturbing and ugly and awesome and scary and bad. Pick pick a word. He is it. Um yeah. No, I think he's by far one of the best casting choices for the film. Um all right. Well, you've heard it before. I'm going to say it again. Spoilers. Lots of them cuz we're talking about it. A lot so pause if you don't want things spoiled to go watch things read things experience it in your own way and then come back and join us otherwise 
is, we shall carry on carrying on. So, Mr. Dan, before we get started, are you pro-source or pro-adaptation, even though I already know the answer, but we'll do it anyway. I am yet again pro-source. <laughs> I'm shocked. <laughs> um, but I I will, when we get to it, I will, I will be the devil's advocate for Ooh. the adaptation. But I, I think Ooh. the source is... It's like, I don't know, it's it's like if you have a perfect diamond and the shadow of a perfect diamond, like it's never going <laughs> to, you were never going to get something as high as Watchmen out of a, an adaptation, even with a billion dollar budget and a great cast and all that stuff. Yes, yes, yes. Mr. Alan Moore yet again has proven that there are certain things that really cannot be put into a visual medium besides a graphic novel and like holds true like it it's hard his work is as we keep coming back to it's so dense that trying to render it it it's a hard task so a plus for effort <laughs> <laughs> and i'm assuming you're in agreement uh or? i okay mm, yes mm. so overall full scope I love the source material. I think the the graphic novel is gorgeous, and yet again, like it's it's. So, I think it is honestly one of my favorite works by him. I know that he obviously doesn't agree, but um, <laughs> we what can do talk we care? About that later. That, that, I, <laughs> oh, we I will. I have my own armchair psychology of Alan Moore yes! regarding this work. Yes, but. and this is why I have you on, Dan, because I need this <laughs> in my life. I need this. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think the, the source material is gorgeous. And again, you know, between his storytelling, his character creation, his settings, the, the illustrations that go with his work, everything just, it wraps it up in this beautiful, grimy, dirty, angry, chaotically beautiful thing. And I and it's without fail. He does this every time. And I think, honestly, this is one of my more favorite ones of his. And then on the flip side, though, the film, I know that you're not as crazy about the film version, but I will say that as kind of bonkers as Zack Snyder is with his films, he does really well with capturing comic books and graphic mm. novel aesthetic. And he's like, that's why he's like DC's number one dude. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He does everything DC, all the Batman, Wonder Woman, Le uh, like uh, League, Justice League Justice and all League. that. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's like he does all of these films because he really does have a, a very good eye to capture comics or graphic novels into a film adaptation, I will say. He has a very graphic novel attitude towards yes. his productions, I would say. Yes. Like even, I even when totally he's agree. Like, um, if you've ever seen, this might be something to say for it later, but if you've ever seen Sucker Punch. Oh, I was going to bring that up. <laughs> well, Sucker Punch. Okay, sad fact. Sucker Punch is not based on a book, and I Googled it to make sure because I was like, <laughs> if that is based on a book, you bet I'm doing it because that film was a hot mess, but man, it was a beautiful <laughs> So we we can dig into that that beautiful yes! disaster later, but I was going to say that like Sucker Punch is such a personification of this. God, like, yes, the coolest aspects of a like grimy mid nineties yes. comic book shop. Uh, like, another great casting for that yeah. film too. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Z Zack Snyder did he do three hundred? He did do he did three hundred. He did Batman v Superman, which is not uh -huh. a movie. He did uh, <laughs> no Watchmen. <laughs> he did. He started to do Justice League, and then, as everyone knows, he, there was a really terrible family tragedy. So Joss Whedon took yeah. over, and then he did. Yeah, his he came own, back though, didn't he? Yeah, he did his own his own take of it, which I actually I actually liked. 
What um, was like if, seven hours long or something yes, it absurd? Is, it is a whole <laughs> so day. Long. It is a whole day, and I will I will give him infinite credit for the fact it's that it's beautiful like, though. Well, they gave him a budget, right? So the, they gave him, you know, they said, "All right, he, all right, Zach, you know, here's here's this much for reshoots. We don't want you to do anything crazy." And then he got a bunch of the actors around in his, like basically his backyard with like a green screen and shot these whole subplots. <laughs> you know, I was like, "Oh yeah!" And Batman and Joker are in the post-apocalypse, and you know, yes. <laughs> like all of these. Yes. He has this. Uh, I believe he's in his forties or fifties now, but he has this mm-hmm. like awesome like college sophomore enthusiasm mm-hmm. for the subject matter where he does it's, it's not like it's not necessarily <laughs> this is going to sound very rude it's not necessarily like a high <laughs> level of sophistication <laughs> but it is a moderate le- like it's not stupid i would not use the word stupid yeah we're not talking like zoolander <laughs> yeah. humor here <laughs> no, it's just it's this enthuse it's this fresh enthusiasm Mm-hmm. For the world yeah, and that. for these characters that you might gloss over as like you know silly kid stuff, right? Like mm-hmm. Zack Snyder takes this like big bombastic mythological attitude towards yep. everything he does, um, yep. which is why like go figure he directed a movie like Three Hundred and then later Watchmen. And then, <sighs> okay, you know. say what you want about Three Hundred. People have so much hate for that movie, but I am obsessed. <laughs> Oh, I love it. I I actually I loved it so much. That that might be a good uh, episode for later. Oh, I know. It's also a graphic novel too, boys and girls. Woo! Um, Anyway, we we, get too into the. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Feels like now that we've gone complete tangent. Jared, uh, what's his name? Uh, Jared Butler in a tight little leather speedo. Jared (laughs) Butler, dreamy, dreamy Scotsman. Mm -mm -mm. With the pointiest beard anyone has ever seen. Oh my god, chiseled, chiseled, everything. Oh, and all the CG abs. Oh, that movie (laughs) is gold. Anyway, that's not what we're going to talk about. Does that answer your question now that we've gone down this rabbit hole of everything Zack Snyder <laughs> that all loops back to this? <laughs> so if you've seen any Zack Snyder movies, then basically just imagine that aesthetic and then just put it into a scenario. So now we're talking about Watchmen. <laughs> yes. And just imagine that, if you will. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right. Well, let's let's officially dive in. So. Let's talk about the source material first. So if you would not mind giving a synopsis, and then we'll dive into that bad boy. October 1985. The infamous masked adventurer known as the Comedian has been murdered. Now, the renegade vigilante Rorschach leads a one-man crusade to uncover his killer and bring them to justice. As he reunites with the last surviving superheroes, Tensions mount between East and West, every clue pointing to a sinister conspiracy that threatens to bring about nuclear Armageddon. Those sworn to protect civilization may prove to be its greatest threat. If they watch over us, then who watches the Watchmen? (laughs) (laughs) Dun-dun-dun-dun! I'm assuming you wrote that. Yes, I did. Because you're stellar, as always, (laughs) Mr. Man. Love it. I I am almost positive if they watch over us who watches The Watchmen was part of the promotional campaign for the film. Yes. And that also was pulled from, 
I, I did a little reading on this. That was pulled from a Latin phrase that roughly translated to that. Yes. Um, I don't yes, remember the a, Latin phrase off the top um, of my hold head. On. It, I am going to give, I am going to absolutely butcher the pronunciation. I know. It's like, I don't speak Latin, so but it is I'm not a professional, like, folks. Chius custodiet ipsos custodis, um, yeah. which was from a Latin poet I have it written down. I think it's Juvenal's, his treatise, it's his treatise on women. I am not a Latin scholar, so I have never actually read the story beyond the that phrase, but it is a, a Roman scholar or a Roman writer um, mm-hmm. talking about, like, I think it's about uh, domestic challenges and essentially the question is if you are terrified that your roman noble woman wife will have sex with whoever she wants and Mm -hmm. have you know bastard children that you provide for how do you keep that under control and people say oh well get a guard and then his you know his thing is like well what if she wants to fuck the guards yeah (laughs) exactly it's like women can't be trusted so you have to have somebody watch her but then women guiles will make you or the guard then have to be watched by someone else. So who's yes. watching the watchman? And yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I don't fully agree. I think women can um, keep it in their pants and have self-control. <laughs> but that's just me. Well, that's an advantage you have over a, a upper-class Roman man 2,000 years ago. <laughs> yes, we have learned a bit since then. Hopefully, hopefully. But yeah, it is fascinating that they, they very much, like, they feature it a lot in the the campaigning for the film, especially, and I think they actually have a scene in the film that's like spray painted on the wall. Who's watching uh, the Watchmen? And it's present in the it's and, so it, and in the graphic that's, novel, yeah, yeah, yeah. Something that I think is really fun. Um, just jump diving into the comic book. Uh, something that I think is really fun is that like the actual phrase "Watchmen" is never said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that which is we, interesting. We have that kind of hanging over the whole story, and we see the graffiti saying, who watches the Watchmen? Nobody mm-hmm. in the story calls themselves, you know, oh, I'm a Watchman, or our team is called the Watchmen, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but that then, yeah, like, true. that concept, sometimes hilariously, like, punized and literalized when it comes to Dr. Manhattan. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. But that, that central tension, um, which has sadly been relevant ever since the development of agriculture, I would say, is the question mm-hmm. of if we appoint people to protect us or they appoint themselves, who protects us from the people who protect us yeah know? which is like the whole issue with like dictatorships <laughs> oh absolutely and i think <laughs> like, there's a you're protecting me but who's protecting me from you <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. The, and there's a big question of like what you know how many people truly are morally pure and what is mm-hmm. moral purity um and i think the the comic kind of delves into that and delves into the various motivations that people might have Mm-hmm. Um, for kind of taking that mantle on themselves. Like, um, you know, there's a famous little bit in Under the Hood, which is um, a fictional novel, autobiography of the life of a superhero uh, mm-hmm. by Hollis Mason, who was the first night owl. He was in the um, Minutemen. Yes, yeah. he was one of the Minutemen. And at one point he says, we were kinky, we were crazy, we were Nazis, a few of us were genuinely good people, and we did too much good for people to ignore us. You know? <laughs> it's, it's a wild statement. 
Yeah, but you think about that when that came out, it's like that that you know the Minutemen were in the 30s and 40s, right? So I mean, you think of the the era of what was happening politically and kind of oh, socially at that time, right? Yeah, and yeah. I think there's a. Um, I remember reading some time ago. We haven't quite delved into the actual story itself, which uh, we probably should soon. <laughs> we can. I mean, there's so much to unpack, y'all. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll we'll just get there. preface it with uh, I remember reading some time ago, uh, internet form. Um, mm-hmm. This was some years ago, but people were discussing, you know, superheroes, right? And kind of the concept of like, what is a superhero? What is the appeal of that fantasy? Mm-hmm. And uh, someone, some anonymous anonymous person whose pseudonym I have forgotten, made the point of like, think about America in 1938. Mm-hmm. We're just barely scraping our way out of the the Great Depression. Yep. Uh, prohibition is over, but its impact is very much felt, and there are fascists yep. in Germany. A lot of the yep. guys writing these comic books, if they're not Jewish, they are friends with Jewish people, right? So it's. Yep. One of these things where it's like people who are very keenly aware of not just, you know, the troubles of the world, but -hmm. the fact that power itself can be a thing that is distinctly untrustworthy. And that this great fantasy was the idea of somebody like Batman or Superman or The Flash or whoever. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea, the fantasy is the idea of someone with the power of you know the german military right like someone with that kind of physical power using it to beat up al capone instead of a guy on a street corner who doesn't want to pay protection money yeah and that for pretty big swaths you know knock on wood for fair swaths of modern culture that is uh, a harder thing to understand yeah but for the lot of the world it isn't. It's no, it's quite commonplace, unfortunately. Yeah, totally. We're very, very fortunate that in our lifetime, you know, like our, like you and me, our lifetime, we haven't really had to worry about it in the same respect for sure. Yeah. Well, and, and particularly like thinking about prohibition and guys like Al Capone and the mafia and mm-hmm. all the other groups, you know, involved in that kind of thing and how like, there was a knowledge of these like predatory organizations being part of daily life. Oh yeah. And why the fantasy of like, what if some guy in a mask just beat them all up and stopped them from shaking down the local grocery store? Yeah. You know? Well, and the the Minutemen, I mean, they you know we, they talk about that that it was a whole bunch of cops that got together and said, you know, the the system is not working. We want to do more. So what can we do? And so it was a whole bunch of undercover cops who decided to kind of take justice and law into their own hands well, so outside the, of their work, right? That is the film version, if I Oh, am, that's the film version. Whoops. Yes. Oh, re- rewind. But, you heard nothing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but sh- I'm shall them all we jumbled. <laughs> uh, dig into the, the comic book? Please. Please do before I get too sidetracked yet again. <laughs> So, very, very, very rough and fast synopsis of the comic. <laughs> yeah, we Takes could be here a while otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> Takes place in an alternate 1985. Basically, superheroes first emerge on the scene in the late 1930s through 1940s. There's a group called the Minutemen, first uh, founded by Captain Metropolis, but inspired yeah. by Hooded Justice. 
Yar. Uh, I love that character. But who I love Hooded Justice. Vicious uh, vigilante who was kicking the shit out of people. And then Captain Metropolis was this military veteran who decided he also wanted to kick the shit out of people while wearing a mm-hmm. cool outfit. And, and a cute so little mask are... that almost covers his face. <laughs> yeah, just barely. <laughs> uh, just barely. So they, they formed a superhero group um, and, you know, did a certain amount of work and then things fell apart. And then in the late 60s, the second generation of superheroes kind of took over and the first actual superhuman, Dr. Manhattan, a man who was a victim of a uh, basically a nuclear accident. He wound up locked in a chamber that separated his intrinsic field from his body, utterly destroying him. And yet he resurrected with infinite power. Um, And so his presence, Dr. Manhattan's presence in the world has dramatically shifted the way the Cold War went is basically mm-hmm. the the superhuman exists and he's American is the phrase mm-hmm. in that world. Um, and that he his presence as a strategic deterrent has actually made things so much worse than they were oh God, even yeah. as bad as the real world got. Yeah, um, in a weird way, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so, you know, that that's sort of the status quo. Superheroes eventually get outlawed, but uh, Dr. Manhattan and the comedian remain legal because they are government operatives. The comedian mm-hmm. gets murdered. Rorschach, the smelly vigilante with a cool <laughs> hat and an awesome face mask, oh, investigates God, yeah. the comedian's death, gets together the last surviving superheroes, ultimately discovers it's a plot by another superhero called Ozymandias. Mm-hmm. Um, Ozymandias has basically staged, he has formed this massive conspiracy to stage an interdimensional alien attack on the Earth to unite mm-hmm. all of Earth against an enemy that doesn't exist. Woo-hoo. And uh, that's pretty you know, much as where the story ends <laughs> up, is our characters confronting Ozymandias and, you know, kind of figuring out what to do after they figure out that if they expose him, they may or may not guarantee nuclear Armageddon. Right. It might just revert back to what it was before <laughs> the incident. Yeah. Yeah. Woof. It's wild. Um, I... I don't even know where to start, as always. Alan Moore, you've done it again. Where do we start? Uh... <laughs> well, we could do a, a character by character thing if you sure. want. Sure. Um, yes, let's do it. Which I don't want to start with Rorschach because he's my favorite. He's a lot. <laughs> he is the, also the best. Yeah, we won't start with him. We'll save him for later. I mean, I think um, one of the more fascinating character designs that Alan Moore produced out of this, I think really is Dr. Manhattan. Mm. Um, He is the only, like you were saying, he's the only one who really is truly superhuman. He was genetically altered and basically rewritten by a nuclear explosion that was contained within a cell. And he literally, you know, blows up and then re-atomizes in stages over a span of like what weeks or something like he just starts rebuilding and is something completely different he's all blue he doesn't like clothes anymore so he's walk around naked yeah and well it's, it's, it's fascinating it's <laughs> partly inspired by a real incident um, oh, okay a fellow yeah. by the name of if i recall correctly lewis slotten 
Um, oh, that's right. Yeah. One of my mentors wrote an excellent play about. Um, Paul <gasps> Mullen wrote the Lewis Slotin Sonata. Really worth <gasps> watching if you ever get a chance. Okay. Well, don't you fret, folks. I will find <laughs> a link somewhere, and that's going to be in the description for sure. Oh no, Dan is shaking his head. I, yeah. I no. 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 There's a. I, okay. I'm pretty sure you can get the. You can get the script. I don't know if there's any currently running productions, but Lewis Slotin. Okay. Well. Real guy and a, <laughs> a, a heavy infer, uh, inspiration for Dr. Manhattan and John Osterman, kind of that world um, mm-hmm. of basically like the 19, early 1950s. It's post-World War II. The nuclear bomb has kind of been unlocked, but there is mm-hmm. continued experimentation. And right. this idea of like, um, if I recall correctly, it's been a while since I read this stuff, but they literally called it like tempting the dragon or wrestling the dragon where these like young guys who are nuclear physicists would do experiments like carrying pieces of highly radioactive material and like putting them into the the reaction chamber or whatever it was but basically they all knew it was insanely dangerous yeah they still did it because they thought it was cool this sounds like shit that like MK Ultra would have done. Oh. But they weren't even on drugs. <laughs> yeah, no, they weren't even on drugs. They were just they were just a bunch of science nerds. Oh, who were just like, bless. what if I care? What happens if I do this? <laughs> <laughs> but so this poor bastard, uh Louis Slotin, Jeez. Yeah, he he wound up getting a massive um I'm so to- shocked that that happened. <laughs> yeah. And he had, he basically had to be locked away and people more yeah. or less like studied him as he died with his yeah. consent. Oh but that, God. like, this this terrible thing happened, and then that's sort of the inspiration for, like, the Dr. Manhattan character. Gotcha. Is that okay. he is a guy who accidentally wound up in this mm-hmm. nuclear accident that uh, transformed him into the superhuman mm-hmm. being who can literally do anything. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Um, I, I think one of my favorite kind of arcs with him is that, you know, he... The the main kind of piece of him that is constant throughout the whole thing and you, it's really hard to track, but at the same time, like everything's happening, nothing's happening with him where time is not linear for him. He is experiencing everything all at once constantly and it's bouncing around back and forth. Like it is really hard to keep track. I'm like where are we with you right now? Because time is irrelevant. Right. And he I, calls I it a, love he, that. He calls it a jewel. Like he says, mm-hmm. you know, time is like a jewel that humans insist on seeing one facet at a time. And obviously, it's a very meta thing where, like, Dr. Manhattan is describing a comic book page. Like he's saying, <laughs> yeah. it is all happening at the same time, but you only mm-hmm. read one panel at a time. I can yep. see all of the panels. Yeah, it's fascinating. And there's a lot of conversations that he has, especially with Laurie, who is uh, Silk Spectre 2. Oh, which I would love to talk about the Silk Spectres next. Absolutely, we will get to them. I would say third favorite characters are the two two Silk Spectres. Fascinating. Um, Yeah, there's good, good character building. I mean, I'm not surprised by it any of that because it's alan moore he does amazing character oh yeah he, he gives a uh, as we i think discussed a little bit in the uh um the from hell mm-hmm. uh, podcast that just like my heart was broken into itty bitty bits by the elephant man who has like, I four know. pages of <laughs> i know and that's... some really amazing nuggets in there yeah yeah um, but so the the dr manhattan character 
you know, what's what's really interesting about him is this idea that he has infinite power and the power itself traps him. Mm-hmm. It is not liberating like many of us, you know, obviously we fantasize about the idea, oh, if I was bigger, if I was stronger, if I had money, if I had X, Y, or Z, that would liberate me to do, you know, whatever thing I want, right? Like if I Mm -hmm. had, you know, if I ran the USA, I'd stop poverty or whatever. And that the, the Dr. Manhattan character has both infinite power and infinite perspective, and yeah. it is the just perspe- a blessing and a curse. <laughs> yeah, and that it, it keeps him, and obviously this is very much a convention of the story, but he is ultimately an, an interesting phrase to use for a character who has his dong hanging out the whole time. He is, <laughs> he is impotent. He yeah. cannot do anything because he already yeah. knows what he's going to do. Yeah. And that's something characters, you know, in the story, in the story have a hard time fathoming but that also mm-hmm. like you repeatedly see it and you see it in weird gross ways during the story like mm-hmm. in particular um yeah we haven't gotten to the comedian yet so i won't go into too much we can go wherever you like um, <laughs> it's all over the place <laughs> but uh dr manhattan witnesses a pretty brutal murder and oh yeah in vietnam yeah stands there and watches and one of my favorite mm-hmm. parts of the comic is that he gets called out on standing there and watching a murder happen yep. and the last panel of him in that scenario is him standing there with like his hand on his chin you know just staring down at this corpse not really sure why he didn't help yeah <laughs> yeah and that's and that's the thing is his humanity starts to just disappear the longer he's in this state, which I think is part of the problem. But then you're right. I mean, going back to his existence is there is no longer a mystery. Like everything is, it's almost like everything is faded or predetermined, but it's not. Like people still have free will, but he already knows what's going to happen. So it's like free will and fate at the same time, which is a weird thing to think about happening simultaneously because they kind of like combat the other. So it's it's bizarre. It's useful to note here that uh, Alan Moore is a heavy user of hallucinogenics. What? <laughs> I would never have gotten that from, from hell. <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah, he used is, the drugs. <laughs> you know, it, it, is a, it is an interesting thing. With, Shocking. With, with Dr. Manhattan as a character that being powerful has made him powerless and it and it yeah. has also made him fundamentally inhuman like that mm-hmm. the fantasy um and i might get into this later but like the fantasy yeah. of a character like superman is the idea that someone with infinite power would still choose to do good and mm-hmm. it's actually it's an obvious choice to say that they would be bad you know yeah. because that's that's what we experience in most of our lives is like people with a lot it's not so much that having power makes you bad but it is easier to do yeah and then and then in general like you know i I think kind of the thesis of watchmen is that the ultimate apex of power isn't cruelty it's indifference oh god Um, yeah you know ozymandias has a line in one of the later issues where he's talking to somebody and this guy says you know, this guy characterizes Dr. Manhattan as right-wing, and Ozymandias laughs, and this guy's like, what, you don't think he's right-wing? And Ozymandias says, what do you prefer, red ants or black ants? <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, yeah. 
Yeah. That that and that it doesn't it doesn't make sense for John to care about the world because he's beyond the world. You know, like right. he you know, when when you on a smaller scale, like when you encounter, say, a toddler who's really upset with another toddler for playing with their <laughs> blocks or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, might care as far as the emotional distress that has been caused, but you don't care about whose yeah. blocks are whose. Right. And then, you know, magnify that ten times, and that's Dr. Manhattan. He doesn't care about, he unironically <laughs> doesn't care about nuclear holocaust, like, as far as mm-hmm. he's concerned. Because it wouldn't destroy him anyway, so really there's no reason for him to worry about it in his own self, let alone humanity. Yeah. So it... Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. And and there's that whole concept within the story of like, um, it's reported as the superhuman exists and he's American, but the actual quote is God exists and he's American. And he's and American. You know, yeah. And the whole thing that's is like. hubris all the way. <laughs> well, and that God, uh, Dr. Manhattan, I mean, God, I mean, Dr. Manhattan. I mean, um, I mean, what? <laughs> you know, Dr. Manhattan doesn't give a shit about America. Dr. Manhattan no. doesn't give a shit about anything. The world. He's... Yeah, like he doesn't care about Earth in general. Yeah. <laughs> so, and that's kind yeah. of the, it's the thesis, and I think it's honestly the most interesting thing mm-hmm. Moore and Gibbons did with that Superman analog. You know, mm-hmm. contrast it with something like The Boys, where the conceit is like, oh. I was going to bring that up, and I was like, have you seen The Boys? Because yeah, that's basically... Oh, my God. For y'all who have not seen The Boys, it's what would have happened if superheroes basically had an agency (laughs) and, like, media funding and representation and also government contracting. It's wild, man. And it's brutal and rough to watch. The show is way better than the comic book. Yeah, I haven't read the comics. Uh, So I... This is a, a doing a little aside here. I've read some of the comics. Yeah. I've watched some of the show. I think the show is much more nuanced. It's much more. Ooh, this is a first for you, Dan. <laughs> What's well, it's fucking Garth Ennis. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> not, he's a wonderful well, writer, but <laughs> but he he wrote the boys to basically like slap the stereotypical superheroes in the face. I mean, like the, the whole point was to be satirical of like this is what I think of superhero stories that it's so ridiculous and they would be so corrupt because of the power they have of being superhuman and it would be completely taken advantage of and be like you know like paparazziized and stuff like that which is i think honestly true i think that it's very easy to be corruptible to that degree i think yes i i just i think more doesn't it a more with watchman 20 years or 10 years before the boys i mm-hmm. think more does something more interesting with it in my this i do is, too this is my personal soapbox but so we, oh no no yeah so we've covered uh manhattan you know the man mm-hmm. with infinite power who is ultimately powerless uh, mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about, again, going down the character list, uh, Silk Spectre? Yes, I am let's do it. super curious about your opinions yeah. on the two Silk Spectres. The yes. most prominent, possibly only uh, major female speaking roles in the story. It's the only two. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, is, is Silk Spectre, who is from the Minutemen in the 30s and 40s, and then her daughter is the second Silk Spectre, who becomes Miss Jupiter, I think, right? That's what they... Uh, so he... Or are they her, both Miss so, Jupiter? So it's Sally Jupiter is her model name. Mom. Because he's, she's right. Polish. That's Silk Spectre right. number one. Silk Spectre number two, she goes by Lori Juspeziak, or Juspeziak, I... I don't know polish His, last yeah names. her polish name yeah um but she goes by and, and as rorschach would say uh miss jupiter <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh rorschach <laughs> yeah so they they um they're an interesting dynamic because the daughter lori is basically forced into becoming a superhero because her mom is kind of vica- like vicariously living her glory days through her daughter um, and she even has a very similar outfit, same colors and everything. So she really did kind of just step into the shoes of her mother's role. I did find it interesting, like we're going to do a little bit of a comparison, but in the book, they show her training when she's like 13 years old. Yes. So she's already quite young when she kind of gets pushed into that lifestyle. Um, and I think by the time she starts actually becoming part of the quote unquote, you know, masked vigilante group, the Watchmen. Um, she's like what, eighteen, nineteen? Uh, she, she's young. I'm gonna expose my boy, Doctor Manhattan here. Yeah, she is sixteen. Sixteen. <laughs> yeah, we're talking really young, and Manhattan's supposed to be in like what his thirties, forties. Yes. Te- technically, and it's like, oh, honey, Alan Moore, not your best moment. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's it's interesting. A, it's a- it's an unfortunate recurring theme with him, and I know Mr. culture Alan has Moore. changed, but I'm not a. F- You've done it again. Not a fan. <laughs> <laughs> nope, nope. It's a. Uh, it's it's uh, mm, uh, not consent, even if you're. Yeah, mm, yeah. Mm, um, mm, yeah. We won't dive into that, but that's uh, <laughs> a whole other. But the topic. the point is that Silk Spectre number one. Sally Jupiter, like she, she's very open in the story about like she became a superhero because she wanted money. Yes, she wanted the notoriety. Yeah, yeah she's very blunt about being like, yeah, I, I did this so I could start like increase my modeling career and maybe be a movie star, and I don't actually give a shit about helping people. Yep. And then uh, it's very self-serving for Lori. It's it's literally her mom being like, like you said, her mom trying to live through her, being like, "Yeah, you're gonna be a superhero too." The glory days. And so yep. Lori's attitude towards superheroing, it never has a moral drive. No, no, it's more obligation than anything, which is not great. Yeah, and uh, and I think it's why like her as a character. She has the most like reluctance toward it. Toward it, she never, um, you know, unlike a lot of the other characters, like Rorschach and Night Owl, have this like very, you know, oh, back in the day things were good. She never yeah. has that, and mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting then that you know Laurie as a character winds up arguably in the most heroic position um, yeah. because she's the person who makes the argument for humankind. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. she's the only reason that Manhattan actually gives a shit because she's, you know, they, her and Dr. Manhattan were partners in right, romantically the world and romantically, yeah. As, uh, and then, as her, yeah. her mother says, the difference between him and the H-bomb is the H-bomb doesn't need to get laid every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. 
Uh, which I will say. Oh, she's so sharp. So, uh, Silk Spectre number one, like I said, my third favorite Sassy character. Sassy lady. And I, I, I feel like she's very real um, as yeah. far as like we, I feel like we all kind of know older people who are at a point in their lives where they can just be very frank about. Yep. Like, I don't care anymore. <laughs> their experiences. So you, you're hanging out with grandma and she's just really blunt about being like, oh yeah, I got with the whole football team. Like, why wouldn't I? <laughs> to be fair, she's drinking the whole time, which again, stereotypical generational thing. Oh yeah. Uh, but yeah, she's a little boozy. She's a little like snappy, saucy, you know. Um, I do like her character. Um, I'm not crazy about Alan Moore's writing of female characters in general, which I know is partly a uh, generational thing. It was written in the 80s, and also it's Alan Moore. <laughs> there's a legitimate, I don't know, there's a, to come to your side there, like there's a, there's a legitimate thing as far as like, it was the 80s, you know, like these things were not necessarily discussed as thoroughly, but like. Alan mm. really likes using sexual violence as a plot device. God, he does, which I'm not crazy about. It's you don't need to have somebody have like character growth because they got, you know, abused or got raped. And that's unfortunately a part of the plot drive. There's, you know, disclaimer that Silk Spectre does almost get raped by the comedian in her oh, which, days. I'm sorry to sound enthusiastic when you mentioned <laughs> Um, oh Dan, no, no. <laughs> um, but you know, the, like that does lead, in my opinion, into one of the most interesting bits of characterization in the story. Um, mm -hmm. Is that to lay the scene for those of you who should have fucking read the story? Like, read the story. <laughs> um, you heard it here, folks. Dan is making um, you read this. You better read that comic book. Um, you don't see it. I'm doing it for him, but it's the fingers to the eyes, and then going back to your face, and then fingers to my face, and your face. That's what we're doing right now. I'm read this book. At you, kid. <laughs> um, Do it. <laughs> but so there's, you know, this big like uh, formative moment in Silk Spectre Number One's life is that, uh, you know, she's part of the Minutemen, these 1930s mm -hmm. superheroes, and the comedian, as a young man, attempts to sexually assault her, mm -hmm. um, which is a, yeah, uh, I don't want to get scene. into it too much because I think the film actually does some very interesting stuff with that. But I have thoughts about the film, but we will definitely get into um, that because that is a crazy, I don't want to say good scene, but it's a really well-produced scene. I'm um, and as looking forward as to is. that part of the episode. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. So she, she is almost uh, sexually assaulted by basically a co-worker. And then mm -hmm. another member of the team, Hooded Justice, emerges, and he kicks the living shit. Oh my god, he of, destroys him! Like he, he you know, he, <laughs> which is, you know, what kind of justified? You oh, know? <laughs> it's absolutely justified. <laughs> he tried the, to the cool, sexually assault one of his colleagues. Well, like, and the cool, awful thing—it's like the way the comedian basically keeps himself alive, and he is he says, "Oh, so you're getting off on this." And like, yeah, he tries to goad him. Yeah, unironically is, and that's one of my favorite parts of his characterization yeah. is he is a man who is hot for pain and hot yeah. for justice. Like, yes. not he's scary not, combo. Oh, absolutely. I would. I would never <laughs> yeah. want to be no, on the wrong side no. of that fellow. Like, no, 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 no. Um, but the the whole idea, like you know, it's something Moore actually does pretty well. Moore and Gibbons do pretty well. Is kind of the not so much shifting of sympathies, but like the deeply 
unbearably unpleasant nature of Silk Spectre's rescue. That like yeah. Hooded Justice is not, you know, it's it's like if you had like a Lancelot type character, you mm-hmm. know, rides in to save the damsel in distress. And when he's killing the dragon, he just has a really big heart on the whole time. I know. It's like, like oh, that's a bit much. You know, yeah. And that, and that he's, the Hooded Justice is like, he's helping her. And I think, and I think he would help her regardless. Like, I, I am mm-hmm. a Hooded Justice stan. But like, <laughs> the whole thing is like, it's weird and gross and unpleasant that this guy t- genuinely takes pleasure in other people's suffering with the yeah. same intensity, if not more so than the comedian does. He just has this, like, uh, if you've ever seen the TV show Dexter, he has this oh Dexter-like yes. attitude of, like, if you're an acceptable target, I will do whatever I will I do want. whatever I have to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, that's a great example. Yeah, I mean... I. Yeah, I never thought of it that way with the hooded justice that, you know, in the beginning you think, oh, he's coming to the aid of one of his his fellow like fighters. Characters, but yeah. then yeah, but then you then you realize that there's definitely ulterior motives where there's more to it than him just defending her honor, if you will. Oh, and it's so it's such it's a brutal it's a moment that always gets me a little choked up is like, you yeah. know, after the fact he like turns to her and just says for God's sake, cover yourself. And it's like, that, okay. what the actual that fuck, man? bothered the <laughs> shit out of me. Because I was like, okay, so here we are, yet again, victim shaming, which I'm not a fan of. So that's another thing that I'm like, Alan Moore, goddamn. <laughs> not well, your best moment. And I, well, and I, yeah, I, I think that's that frustrating. I think it's 100% <laughs> intentional that it's so... Oh, God, yeah. Everything's messed up. Everything about it is oh, messed up. Oh, it's so... Mm-hmm. It's, a hundred it's gross it's so it is gross it's yeah and in my opinion wonderfully gross that i feel so dirty for like that yes. that character i really like the hooded justice character and i think it's 100 percent intentional that this guy is like in the comic implied to be a nazi sympathizer has some really serious issues with women probably has like some very covered up gay bdsm and not in a like hey the lads are having a good time way but the lads in a bad way yeah we have some we have some inner demons that are obviously not being addressed and and being put upon the world in the weirdest and grossest way possible and i think that's Mm -hmm. and i think that's why he is a fun character despite the fact that he is barely present in the narrative you know. Yeah, I mean, his visual alone, for those who haven't read or seen the, the film, um, his his character, I mean, he's called Hooded Justice, and he legitimately is wearing a black, like, executioner hood with a noose around his neck. Yes. I mean, it's it's a terrifying image. Um, it Yeah, it's badass and really scary. And I'm like, that's an interesting choice oh, and very, of costuming. Very deliberately, like, reminiscent of yeah. plan stuff. Like, very... But very, all black. Yeah. Yeah. Like very... Fascinating nasty choice. Nasty business. Um, so, yeah, yeah, he's a great character. Um, and mm-hmm. and Sally Jupiter, um, Silk Spectre number one. Like, I like that the whole thing with her, the, the thing we see is sort of somebody basically reflecting on their life. Um, mm-hmm. And throughout this story, we see how she sort of reflects on being a superhero and how she felt about it because she was surrounded by people who were motivated to a greater or lesser extent by really intense drives. And in some cases, those drives were morality. And in other mm-hmm. cases, those drives were 
like Hooded Justice. Violence. Um, that it got him hot. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, um, yeah. And that her motivations were mercenary. And that now, as an older woman, she's sitting there in her retirement home being like, well, fuck. <laughs> like, yeah. And that and yeah. she might have fucked up her, her poor old daughter. And that Lori never wanted to be any of that and that and yeah. it's something that's covered in the issue that goes into Lori's backstory is like yeah yeah that there's that reunion with the other superheroes and she yeah that was an interesting scene yeah well she see so for for um, the record she sees the mothman who's one of the superheroes who's repeatedly been called out as deeply unstable is his main thing yeah. is like he he's just He's crazy. He's a man. He just a little cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, that one. Yeah. yeah. And the drawings that they have of him, his illustrations, he's obviously not well. He's older and his eyes are buggy and he's just kind of out of it. Yeah. You know, it's not like with characters like Rorschach who are very intense and you could say insane, but are organized around a principle like Mothman. Rorschach is a sociopath, so I wouldn't really <laughs> <laughs> classify him as crazy. He's just very deliberately he's got he's a sociopath he's, he's that's nasty something else yeah i know we're, we're this saving guy, him i think up. legitimately he, had a mental break <laughs> he's the cherry on the top of the story god um, bless yeah we'll get there <laughs> but you know laurie as a young woman sees the mothman and he's incoherent you know like i remember uh a book that's worth reading Scribbling the Cat by Alexandra Fuller. We can talk about that more later. But Ooh. there's a there's a part where she talks about meeting veterans of the Zimbabwean revolution and how oh. like yeah. they are unironically crazy. Like she's hanging out yeah. with this guy who has a, a pet crocodile, I think. It's either a crocodile sure. or a lion, because you know it's but she talks about like hanging out with this guy and like just watching him go through his day. And she sits there and says, this is something they should show every boy who tries to show, sign up for the military. You know? oh my God. <laughs> like, yeah, like, this is where just, you're ending up. Because yeah. he's just nuts. Like, he's not even, it's not the yeah. nuts of a person who wanted to change the world or wanted to be a make the world a better place. It's the nuts of mm-hmm. someone who's damaged, and that's kind of who the Mothman is. Exactly. This, like, mental break that was not taken care of or was beyond being able to really... And and may have uh, been yeah. motivating. You know, like, may have been... That's true. If he was, like, you know, functional but still mentally unstable, and that was his rationale for getting into the Minutemen, and then he hit a point where he couldn't hide it anymore. That's very possible. <laughs> yeah, so, like, with, with the party like that that the Mothman was at, like, all the kind of the reunion party. That was one thing that I thought was interesting, too, with Lori's character, that, you know, she sees Mothman, and she's like, so that is what I have to look forward to, (laughs) is this hot mess? And it was scary to think about. And it's this interesting thing about uh, the damage that happens to people over their lives, you know, like, and in particular, like, fucking brain damage, (laughs) you know, if you've been... Legitimate brain damage, yeah. the head enough times, right? Like, so Laurie is a great, you know, I I love those two characters. I love uh, Silk Spectre, Mm -hmm. number one, two. I would solidly say, I, well, this is for later in the episode, but I (laughs) really like Silk Spectre, number one. 
She is yes. one of my, again, third favorite character, Silk Spectre, number one. Great layering. She's got a lot of like very surface level, like you feel like she's extremely shallow. She's in only for the money. She's very big on, you know, how it affects her, how it makes her look, how her daughter is basically an extension of her. And there's even that scene where she has the kind of the Tijuana Bible <laughs> Where it's like it's like a little porno mag from the thirties, and it, she was like proud of that because it's about her, and she's like, "This is gross." Like, you know, and it, interesting. At the point I'm at in my life, you know, like I get it as far as you know, like the the whole thing of her her you know she's talking to her daughter, and her daughter's all upset, and then she's like, "Look, mm-hmm. I kind of like remembering when people drooled over me. Like, I yeah. kind of like." Back in your heyday. You know, yeah. that, that at a certain point in her life, yeah, Sally Jupiter was the hottest thing on the planet. You know? Dude, yeah. Like, totally. And it, it is interesting, like, the, I, I now I'm getting this mixed up if this is the film or if this is the book or a bit of both hodgepodge, but mm-hmm. it's like, you know, the, the future keeps getting a little bit darker, but the past gets brighter and brighter every day because you're kind of reminiscing over that. I believe that is present in both I think it is. It's slightly different in each version of how that comes up, but um, that kind of principle is there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah same, same basic idea. Mm-hmm. So, which is very fascinating because that actually made me think of like, that's part of the hard trips and, and falls that you get with people who have dementia, right? Oh, Where they keep yeah. slipping further back into their past and are it's harder to stay present in the future or in the present, which fascinating. Well, there's a bit of literalization in this story mm-hmm. that uh, a yeah. character we all, we will discuss later, Adrian Veidt, <laughs> sells mm-hmm. a cologne called Nostalgia. Yes. And I think it's really interesting that, uh, I love that. Dan Dryberg, the Night Owl, and Rorschach both use it, and that in particular Rorschach uses it to cover his stink. So Rorschach <laughs> is walking around unironically reeking of Of nostalgia (laughs) i know the literary like genius of that it's like just think about that for a second it's mad genius like god helen moore you mad genius i know that is pretty great nostalgia (laughs) i know right and i do love how they kind of pepper that this is like a very aside but how they pepper um like board like bulletin board ads and stuff of nostalgia in the background like it's plastered randomly throughout like billboards and stuff like that it's fascinating well do we have anything else for our dear Lori? because she's a great character i will say um again this we can dive into this a little bit more in the comparison but i i like her character as far as like overall arc in the graphic novel however her reaction to things is a little bit more linear and kind of stereotypical emotional woman letting her emotions run away with her kind of thing which again sign of the times not the best writing slash the men have a little bit more focus in more developmentally but it's not as bad as like from hell and other books that he's written. Yeah, I, I well, will that, say that was something I was actually extremely curious about your opinions on. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I was kind of because it, it speaks to my biases in the modern world. But like I know a lot of women, particularly young women, who are mm-hmm. actually more intensely and weirdly moral than young men. 
Like if I was mm. writing Watchmen mm-hmm. in 2023, Rorschach would be a girl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like as as far as you know, which is which is not a comment on the on the story itself. Like I, I think. No, no, I t- but... I totally see what you're saying. Yeah, it's I I don't know. I think that I I kind of agree with you. I think that. I would strongly feel more like a lot more women are not morally driven, but I feel like have stronger emotions around morality. And I don't think that's anything against men, but I, I don't know. It just, you see it in, you see it differently under the female lens versus the male lens, right? Like morality and justice and vengeance all kind of get rolled into this weird, gross little ball with quote unquote toxic masculinity. And I feel like it's a very different perspective from a woman. Right. But I wouldn't say that women are more morally like just or uncorruptible than men. Like that's not true. Oh, absolutely. But I kinda yeah. I kinda see what you're saying. It's a different lens. Yeah, that that it's just one of those things where it's it's like I I think Moore was reacting to the world he lived in at the time. And yeah. I don't I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. And I don't I don't literally think that and we're we're dancing around him and we're gonna get to him eventually but i don't necessarily mm. think that rorschach works better as a lady i actually think his story is very much a male story but the it, I- it is very geared yeah towards that i i agree with you in that particular setting it would be hard to envision yeah. a woman in that role and that, i can see that and that the way he manifests in that world versus the way uh-huh you know sally Sally manifests in that world as just being a girl who's who's uh, and I'm saying girl but woman mm-hmm. you know a, a woman who's trying to figure out her way trying to figure out how to survive in 30s mm-hmm. America and she has these specific skills and that's how she's going to deal with it and uh again not wanting to get too ahead of ourselves but I do <laughs> really like in the movie that she has this breakdown where she's screaming about how she's a hero <laughs> yes yes and i think I, that's very we true. will definitely talk yeah i think we will definitely need to talk about that scene in, in more depth because that is honestly kind of one of my favorite plot drives for that particular like that family unit of laurie of sally of where the, the comedian kind of falls into all of that um well, would, yes would you yes. like to talk about the night owl Yes, let's transition to yet another. There's so many characters, you guys. Oh, yeah. no, so this might be a long episode. Yeah, we might, we're, we're, we're living in a, the moment right now. <laughs> Two part here, but um, yeah. so Night Owl, fascinating mm-hmm. character. I hated him when I was a young man. Um, like, <laughs> but un- you've learned. Un- 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 <laughs> no, well, and I think I hated him because his name's Dan. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, no, no, I'm weird and intense. You're giving us a bad name. <laughs> uh, but why wasn't Rorschach's name actually Dan? That would have been so much. Oh, better. I would have. I would have. <laughs> they would have ruined my life. I would be dead by now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, so so Night Owl. So like Lori, uh, like Silk Spectre, there are two Night Owls. There's the first Night mm-hmm. Owl who is Hollis Mason. So he's a he's a police officer who becomes a superhero, partly inspired mm-hmm. by Hood of Justice, partly inspired by unironically reading Superman comics in 1938. And, oh, I have opinions on that character. I really like that character. I like how much he sucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, 
That so so Hollis was this young. He's kind of like white bread, white toast. He's kind of he's delicious yeah. white toast. He is. Yeah. He is. He is just a guy who's trying his best to make the world a better place, and of course he fails. So so Hollis, um, a big informative uh, lens on the world is he becomes the night owl. He's a police officer who, on his spare time, becomes the night owl. He wears an outfit. Mm-hmm. He goes out and catches the bad guys he couldn't catch as a officer of the law. And mm-hmm. then after he retires in the early 50s, he writes a book, or it might be late 50s, um, mm-hmm. but he writes a book about being a superhero where he exposes all the shitty parts of being a superhero. Yep. Under the Hood. Now, the, the thing I like about Under the Hood and the thing that stuck with me, I so I first read this as a teenager and it is something that has stuck with me always and I've never been able to like rid myself of the headcanon of is that he tells a story about being a young man working in an auto repair shop and mm-hmm. the boss of the auto repair shop is famous for being like a practical joker. And then this guy comes yeah. out at one point and he's wearing a, a pair of fake breasts and he's crying and he's mm-hmm. saying, you know, my wife has been banging my best friend or my right hand man for 10 years and everybody laughs. And that's a, yeah. a formative image in Hollis Mason's life. And he ends the chapter by saying, Alan Moore ends the chapter, obviously, mm-hmm. but he ends the chapter by saying, I've worn something just as ridiculous while people died laughing. Now, here's an insight into Dan Rector's yeah. mind when he read that. I was positive yeah. he lost a fight to the Joker. <laughs> and I, I mean. And I stayed with that. I stayed uh, with I that. I mean, same universe. We're DC. We're, so we're it's DC. very possible. I think, I think yeah. the idea of the Night Owl and his stupid outfit Standing there with <laughs> tears in his eyes while people I didn't literally win. <laughs> die laughing. People who have been exposed to the Joker gas are like laughing Ooh. themselves to death. And he's standing there utterly powerless. That is an image that <gasps> hit me the first time I read it. And I know it's not Ooh. canon, but in my brain. Who cares? It's canon. It's your head canon. <laughs> it's like. Absolutely. And then the Joker I got arrested that. and got killed. <laughs> like, As you do. Uh, yeah, that's amazing headcanon. I never even, I forget sometimes that this is DC because it's so different than a lot of the DC realm. But, mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think Night Owl is definitely an interesting character. And as, you know, the original Night Owl from the 30s and 40s and Minutemen was kind of bland, was just kind of like, I'm here to save the world, and then didn't do that, obviously, because that's kind of a tall order. Um, well, and I love I love that about him. Like, I love that he was, you know, the, the he was the believer. He was the true believer. He was one of the only ones, honestly. Oh, yeah. He was surrounded by these incredible incredibly troubled people and that yeah. he still was like and we oh, yeah. can go out there and we'll clean save up everybody the you know? <laughs> like, and i and i like that for uh dryberg if we want are, are, are you cool moving to dryberg yeah. yeah i was just gonna say i wanted to kind of touch on you know the the more recent night owl yeah so dryberg is a dryberg is a sex pervert <laughs> oh damn which is, which is actually something i kind of like about him like i uh, i like <laughs> that there's this whole thing that like he so dan dryberg is 
Night Owl number two, and I hate that his name is Dan. Because <laughs> I am also it's you. Guy who it could glasses. be you. <laughs> That's a lot of problems. So therefore, you're the same person. I am not. Obviously, am... anybody who's got glasses are the same. <laughs> but, uh... That's the determining factor. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I prefer Rorschach. I have since I was 16, and I'm not changing my opinion. Oh, I'm so shocked, Dan. I'm so shocked. It's like I don't even know you. I, I had an overcoat and a fedora, all right? I was pretty intense oh, and weird. Oh, yeah, you did. Oh, bless the fedora um, days. But so, so yes. Dreyberg, it's interesting. Um, I like that bit in, I think it's number eight, issue eight or issue nine or something, where it's, mm-hmm. it's blood from the shoulder of Pallas, and the issue itself mm-hmm. is called I Am Brother to Dragons. And oh, the yeah, idea yeah. that, like, Dreyberg is not a dragon, but he's pretty fucking close. His desires are intensely dangerous. And I like, uh, especially, we'll get into this in the film adaptation, but I mm-hmm. like the idea that, like, Dryberg, despite being a guy who's, like, he's let himself go, he's pretty pudgy, he's pretty dorky, mm-hmm. you know, but, like, mm-hmm. he would not be who you wanted to square off against because deep down inside he's as nasty well maybe not as nasty but he is on the same spectrum of nastiness as someone like rorschach like that he Mm -hmm. is this he's just a little bit more put together yeah and and that look yeah an owl is a predator you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) like like totally he he picks this as his symbol but it's it's and it's like apex predator too so we're not yeah oh it's it's highly totemic yeah you know like yeah but so he's a fun character. Um, we haven't gotten into it, but in the uh, original inspirations, he's inspired by the Blue Beetle, um, mm-hmm. who in that version was sort of a gadget guy, you know, a guy, a smart guy who invents a bunch of cool stuff um, mm-hmm. and uses them to fight crime. But I think it's it's interesting um, to me that it is pretty explicit that it's a sex thing. Uh, <laughs> it's also Alan Moore. Well, so it's, Al- carry it's on. Alan Moore. If there's, not a, if there's not a threesome, then you know you're not reading. Alan Moore <laughs> We're not comic. doing it right. Um, <laughs> oh, Alan Moore! So many things. Well, I, I like it. Something Zack Snyder said um, during the production of the film, where he says, "Bat in my world, Batman can't get it up unless he's rescued some people." Yeah, that checks out. And I like the idea <laughs> of Dryberg as a character. It's so true, though. That it's partly about power. It's partly about, mm-hmm. you know, inf- actually, I would say it's not about inflicting pain, but it is about defeating evil. Absolutely. There is a morality, like very heavily based morality and justice kind of drive for him, for sure. And that in the end, like, like it is important that when he and Silk Spectre ultimately shack up, it's after they've rescued a bunch of people. They haven't killed anybody. Yes. They've rescued a bunch right, of people. Right, because he, they try to have sex at his place before that, and he's having difficulty getting it up. And they're like, oh, we'll just sleep and cuddle. And then they have their little, like, save people from the fire scene. He's like, yep, I'm ready I'm for it. So, yeah, there's I'm de- in my outfit. Definitely. In my stupid outfit. Yep. And I, and I do oh, love that. stupid outfit. Comic, I love it. He looks fucking <laughs> yeah. dumb. He does like his all of the costumes sucks. look really dumb. <laughs> I know. They all look dumb. And in the, in the comic, um, the Dave Gibbons art, something I like is, like, later on when they're, like, hunting down the mask killer who turns out to be a... 
certain individual. Um, Mr. Ozzy. <laughs> but, but when I mean, what? What? When they're what? on the hunt, there's these dis- depictions of him. You know, he's wearing a black T-shirt and slacks. And they fit perfectly. Mm-hmm. And he actually looks cool. Like, he actually that looks like a heroic character. You know, mm-hmm. he has his glasses as he's typing things away on the computer, hunting down the bad guy. And then in the story, whenever he loses power, he looks more like a dork. And whenever he mm-hmm. has power, he's, oh, he's cool. Like, you could see why someone like Laurie would want to shack up with a guy like this, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, and she ma- she makes comments too, like when they're when her and John, um, Doctor Manhattan, are on Mars. She makes a comment too that Dan is a not reliable. She, I can't remember the word she uses, but she's like, you know, he he, um, oh, like he he just connects with her on another level well, he's, because he's actually you know human. he's in touch with humanity and he's human, yeah, and he also understands what it's like to be a vigilante. So, like, you've got all of these kind of things working in her favor. Like, he understands the lifestyle. He's not completely disconnected from his humanity like Dr. Manhattan is. Um, and, yeah, it's an interesting connection there. Yeah, well, absolutely. And I think that's part of Lori's development as a character mm-hmm. is that she, you know, she comes to be at the point where it's like, okay, so Dr. Manhattan is the perfect man. He's this big, you know, sexy guy. But he also doesn't care. And he's kind of no, going through the motions. he's so disconnected. Yeah. Versus Dryberg is like a guy who actually cares about her despite his flaws. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I mean, they all are completely flawed. But yeah, you're right. He he actually has the capacity and the drive to actually want to be there for her and actually engage with her like mentally, physically. They, they both want to fight together. They both want to talk and be together. Yeah, it's very interesting. I didn't even think of the whole like the mood changes when like he's doing the the badass things and his clothing does. It does look more badass. And that's interesting. I never caught on to that like that. I've read this fucking book like 18 times. (laughs) (laughs) And every time I read it, every time I read it, something new. It's always something new. Always. I know. And again, this is classic Alan Moore where there's so much stuff in there that you will never not find something new and no matter how many times you read it it's so dense well should we talk about the comedian before our last two characters because i i have some ideas bring it on yes oh what a piece of shit i know i love him but he is an absolute he is a garbage can on fire. Fucking nightmare. And very yeah. well played yeah, he by, is. Uh, not to get too ahead of ourselves. Jeffrey, Jeffrey Dean, Dean Morgan. Morgan. Expert. Oh, yeah. We'll get to him. Real scumbag. Yeah. Basic God, idea. Yeah. Rough character. This guy was someone who was looking for license for violence. Yep. He just needed an excuse. And then he got government sanctioning, which is even more terrifying. Yeah. So, so there's a, <laughs> there's a reason up. he's wearing like more and more leather as the story goes on. And like there's a reason yeah. that like it goes from him just being a guy wearing a mask smiling to the mask itself as a smile. Yeah. Ooh, I don't know. What's your take on him? He, I, I think the most kind of, it's not ironic, but the most... Oh, maybe it is kind of ironic, but the, the fact that his name is the comedian and he is the darkest and least 
funny, humorous, whatever, like your stereotypical comedy. Oh, he never tells a fucking joke that we actually like. No, <laughs> I know. He is anything but funny. His name is the comedian. And, you know, he always has his kind of com- comments of like, you know, that's the, the that's the joke or, you know, everything's a, just a big joke. And I just I'm so fascinated by that name for his character because he really is just kind of true bottle, barely bottled chaos. And you you see that a lot in some of the flashbacks that they're having. Like he's the first one of the, the superheroes to die. So they have a lot of flashbacks of, you know, what he was like in his heyday, which he he has that near rape scene with Silk Spectre. Oh, and then and then he's got when Dr. Manhattan remembers him in the Vietnam War when the war actually is won by America and then he got a Vietnamese woman pregnant. She asks him to take her with him or yeah, she asks him to stay and talk about the baby. And he says, I'm leaving and forgetting everything about you. And she's like, you will not forget us. And then he guns a pregnant woman down. I mean, it's rough. It's rough, man. Nobody has a positive memory of him. Nobody has a positive He's not a great person. Like nobody, everybody, including, um, we haven't really mentioned him, but Moloch, the last surviving Oh, Moloch, yeah. Like, uh, you know, there's a big moment in the comic where comedian Mm -hmm. comes to Moloch, who was a supervillain in the past, and like confesses Mm -hmm. about finding out about a certain character's plan and how that will almost certainly destroy the world or save it and how the comedian can't helped get react. there yeah like he can't yeah. stop it he can't support it he can't do anything and so he's just sitting there crying and being like oh that's the big joke the big joke is on me the big joke is on me i'm the punchline and Moloch's in there being like oh jesus please leave me alone what the <laughs> hell is happening yeah it's like please don't kill me uh i do yeah I it's it's do God. love yeah. the sequence um again not wanting to get too far mm-hmm. into the movie but like i'd love the mm-hmm. sequence where he and night owl are suppressing a riot and he says the american dream yes. came true you're looking at it <laughs> you're looking at it god they're yeah, I mean, I, ugh, it. There's just so much damage there, and then you that that actually is, I think, probably one of the closest repre- representations that I I've seen in Watchmen that reminds me of the boys, where I feel yes. like that is what happens when you are unchecked, when you have, but most likely have a lot of mental issues, yes. trauma, you name it, you're not dealing with, and then you're told to go out and use that trauma to debilitate others. Yes. And so he, I mean, he, he just turns into this crazy mercenary and the government is hiring him to do these, like, and then I, I kind of jumping ahead in the film too, they, they reference that he might've been the assassin, like he was the assassin that killed JFK. And like, like there's a lot of things that he is a troubled person and has not been kept in check. Well, He's just been funded so Aaron, <laughs> by I, the government. I don't want to put you too much on the spot here. No, yeah, no. But how the fuck do you feel about him and Sally getting together? It's rough. It's rough. Um, I don't. I don't care for it. Yeah. Um, I don't care for it. Sorry. This to is laugh. so. It's this a is my. Subject. No. No. It's it. I totally. I'm right there with you. Like I. It's. It's so. Fu- <laughs> so fucked. But I think my my issue with it is that he attempts to sexually assault her. 
and he yeah and beats her the oh, shit he, up like he well, abuses her physically before trying to sexually abuse something her something i want to say which which yeah. may come up in the we're gonna be here all day um which may come up <laughs> in, the, in the film aspect of it it's like i don't know if this is the first time he tried to rape somebody but i think this is not the first time he hit a woman you know I don't think so either. I definitely wouldn't be surprised. I, on both counts, if that was not the first time he tried to do that. It was the first time with Silk Spectre, but I don't think that well, I that's the first time like he's ever he, tr- he attempted s- to do it ever. He says in the comic one, only once, and I do actually, I trust that. For which Silk is not Spectre. A, yeah. Which is not a... But not for other women. Not a validation. You know, I, I, I can take as canon the idea that it's like, oh, okay, he... Tried to sexually assault someone once, and that has actually been a specter over his life. A silk specter, if you will. Um, <laughs> which, again, is not a not an endorsement. Not even a... Not yeah, excuse, no, no, God, Not no. an endorsement. Right. I don't think that's the first time he punched a woman in the stomach. Absolutely not. I, I almost can guarantee it. Yeah, it's a graphic scene. I, I think that my my biggest issue with it was that... She gets, you know, she gets assaulted mm. and then they still allude and then eventually reveal that she'd also later had what sounds like potentially consensual sex with the comedian, which then is, produces. I think it is explicitly. I think it is consensual. Life is complicated. I think it is a consensual. I, I, I think she gave enthusiastic consent to their actual encounter. Their I think so too. That's kind of the the vibe, which again, that makes me upset on a whole nother yeah. level. We'll get to that in a second. But um so then, you know, they they allude that she'd had an affair and they like Lori her whole life thought that she was the daughter of Hooded Justice, but then it turns out it was actually the comedian that was her father. Uh, to me, this is a very male lens. Yes. I don't I don't like that like realistically, if a woman had been had sexual trauma or had sexual aggression with a man and they weren't already in a relationship with Mm -hmm. them where that had been kind of the start of the relationship where they might have been in an abusive relationship and they were stuck in it or were you know they were living with it or whatever you want to call it i don't feel like that would be the natural progression to then be like oh well he tried to sexually assault me so now i'm actually going to have consensual sex with him i i don't see it I don't see it as being a consensual thing, which is why I'm like, maybe it wasn't. And she was kind of passing it off as like she kind of rationalized it. Like, I don't know. Um, Again, mental abuse, mental trauma is really sticky and everybody handles it in their own way. So obviously she had her demons and felt that having a relationship brief as it was with him she she convinced herself or she was convinced like that she was okay to do this and it's it, they don't really explain like the rationale of like why did it happen after the assault and not before yeah and that's kind of what i'm trying to figure out is like it didn't make sense in the timeline in my head no, personally no that's a that's a oh honestly in my humble opinion that's a that's a great commentary and i think it's a it's a limitation mm-hmm. of what more was working with at the time yeah i think so but the basic idea of like on my own personal level like i don't 
as it plays out in the world, I don't object to the idea of Silk Spectre and the comedian have every reason to hate each other, and then they wind up together, and then they create this child together. But I get the hang-up for a modern Mm -hmm. audience, myself included. If you had the two storylines separate and it was two different characters i would be on board like she gets abused or almost abused by one of her colleagues and then has a relationship with the comedian if those were two separate instances fine great like that's fine but when you have the two crossing paths like that in that order to me it's like that doesn't make sense well and you kind of alluded to it but it it would have to me Sitting here right now, it might be an interesting thing if, like, they had a consensual relationship. Yes. And then later on, he was like, Yes. Fucking, what's the deal here? Why are you resisting? Yes. This is not a problem. Like, let's get it down. That would make more sense to me. And especially if they were hiding it. Which, again, is not an endorsement on my part. (laughs) No, none of this is an endorsement. However, from an actual, like, Ra- not rational, but from well, from a, I yeah, I don't even know how to just because it's not a rational thought process. It's more of just I don't yeah. It's this is sticky because it's like I don't want to be interpreting that every single person who's in an abusive relationship who has gone through an a, like a sexual assault like this is gonna go through the same motions. Like oh. everybody's got their own yeah, journey, it's, right? It's a, but it just it, it just doesn't it didn't add up in my head. It, it's a it's a know. tricky, gross situation, and I think yeah. Again, in 1986, I, I think Alan Moore mm-hmm. was very in love. With the idea of, oh, he's a bad guy, but she winds up with him anyways. Like, Right. It's like she likes a bad boy, which is – that was kind of the vibe that I got a little bit, which I, again, not crazy about. Yeah, but. but like not even that, but I think even more than that, like Alan being like, I like the idea of someone getting together with someone they have every reason to hate. I think that concept probably fascinated him in a way that was not necessarily truthful, which is yeah, the biggest insult I, I will ever give to Alan Moore. <laughs> <Where> <laughs> like, Dan, such spicy words. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, his character is fascinating and, and disturbing and he's really kind of like the underbelly of everything that you don't want to see in a in a superhero yes but I just I feel like that's a realistic thing like you you look at people who go into certain professions like positions of power will attract people with a certain mentality you see this very specifically with like you're looking at like serial killers and psychopaths and like sociopaths. Oh, they they go into law enforcement, medical fields. They go into positions, positions where people or politics. Have no yeah, them. yeah, and they have a lot of that control, and they have that as an outlet. And so this, I think, was his outlet to be out of control while still being in control. If that makes sense. No, it absolutely um, does. The comedian is just, there's so many dark layers to that character. And it is definitely a very Alan Moore, grimy kind of face of society. And he's very, he uses that a lot, especially in like you see that in From Hell. You see that oh, yeah. in, um, oh my God, V for Vendetta. Like you see a lot of that theme. Those kind of authority figures. 
Yeah, absolutely. So that's it's not at all surprising Put into that he generated a character like this. Strange <laughs> and, uh, you know, like I love it's maybe a little bit of a peek beyond the veil, but I love that he Uh-oh. winds up decked out in leather by the end of the story. <laughs> like, it's pretty badass, and, I'm not going to well, lie. His leather mask is like, it's this strange like gimp situation, but then with a scar a over bit. the eye of the, the side of his mm-hmm. face that is scarred. So, uh, yeah, you know, fascinating character. Yeah. And a true, you know, he's inspired. We haven't really talked about the inspiration, but he's inspired by the Charlton Comics Heroes character, the Peacemaker. Oh, that's right. And uh, we can talk about that more later, but it is interesting Mm -hmm. that his fate is sealed by him going rogue to find out what's Mm -hmm. what's really going on. Yeah. That's what kills him. I know. I mean, it it is interesting that he has a very, like, I don't give a shit about anybody but myself. And that's even kind of questionable. He's just kind of chaos. And it is interesting to see, like, the towards the end of his life, he kind of has a come to Jesus (laughs) moment with the with the the villain Moloch of like, I, I am the joke. And like everything that I've done with my life up until this point is the joke. Yeah, very interesting way for the character to kind of have a finalized, like, realization, I guess, of what their life has become up till that point. Before the, he gets the shit kicked out of him, and then he gets Before thrown. he gets thrown out of, a, 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 like, a skyscraper. Yeah. Uh-huh. Very, very tragic character and very much on par with anything Alan Moore. Just very dysfunctional in all just sorts. Just an absolute mess. <laughs> so, mess of a guy. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so with all that said, why don't we talk about me and, like, two-thirds of the fan base's favorite character, Walter Kovacs, a.k.a. Rorschach. Yes, let's talk about Rorschach. I love it. Bring it. (laughs) I'm ready for it. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, I think he's... I think there is a reason that there is a a pretty... I, I think there's a reason that this character is one of the ones that is most heavily associated Mm. with the comic. Mm -hmm. And part of it is because we literally start inside his brain. You know, we we start with his journal and he is more or less the only character we have this like running through line of his commentary on things because we keep seeing excerpts from his journal versus the other characters. Like we do have these little breakout you know, issues where we see their backstory and their thoughts and all Mm -hmm. of that. Yeah. But yeah, so it is this interesting thing that we're starting the story um, from the perspective of this like very intense, you know, very grimy kind of guy. I mean, for one thing, he has a very cool look. He really does. <laughs> it's by far the coolest. And I, I, the mask is, you know, the, the name that goes with the mask of like the Rorschach test and that, I mean, that whole connection is very cool. But yeah, yeah he's well, visually it's... very stunning to look at. Oh, yeah. And it's, mm-hmm. it's fascinating. Like, it's an interesting thing as far as like, you know, obviously the Rorschach inkblot test, like one of the big... You know, kind of, uh, obviously it's, it's very outdated psychology now. Like I think yeah. most, most psychoanalysts and such don't, yeah, they don't really use it as far as mm-hmm. I'm aware. Like it's more of a pop culture thing. Mm-hmm. Um, although very like for the era, the comic is set. Right. And particularly when Rorschach would have come of age, 
you know, it it tracks as being something that would have been on people's minds and right. cons- uh, con- taken seriously, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Because this is 80s, so that that all kind of tracks. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so, so one of the interesting things about that is like Rorschach, this character, is defined by being a moral absolutist, you know, mm-hmm. like that he is this really hardcore dude um he sees things quite literally you know like very black and white like his face is black and white yeah that's literally something he talks about yeah yeah and yet the way the rorschach test works is that like the patterns themselves actually don't have an objective meaning like they're Mm, they mm -hmm. are things you interpret and that your interpretation indicates your psychology more than like you know it's is this pattern two bears high-fiving or a picture yeah. of your mom and dad fighting? You know, right? Let's like, talk about that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. It is very subjective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that's like, it's an interesting like bit of, it's an interesting wrinkle in his character off the bat. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, he is, to give like the, the Cliff's Notes version um, of his backstory. I don't know. Do we, do we want to get into that? Or Yeah. Yeah, I think we can do um, that. Just have a quick, uh, quick little yeah, breakdown so the, of him. He's part of the, in the universe, he's part of the second generation of superheroes. Um, mm-hmm. I think he becomes active. I think it's canonically like in the mid to late 1960s after the Minutemen dissolve. And uh, mm-hmm. his whole story is that basically he was a child of a single mother who is a sex worker who is like horrifically abusive to him. Yeah. And that he just, like, the, when you see his backstory, you see that he grew up under these circumstances where he was totally alienated. Like, I think there's actually a point at which a character comments on uh, the psychologist who winds up interviewing him, you mm-hmm. know, literally comments on it. He literally says, like, I have never met someone so alienated. He, everyone in the world hates him and yeah. he hates everybody else. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, in particular, I remember... Uh, this is a little a little bit of interesting, um, I guess you could call it apocrypha if you wanted to, Ooh. but in the sort of promotionals, the like lead up to Watchmen, um, they had done the, uh, Moore and Gibbons had done these pictures of characters, like kind of pinup images, mm-hmm. um, not pinup sexy, but pinup yeah. in the comic book term, meaning, you know, sure, a, sure, a sure. sort of splash page um, mm-hmm. with like quotes from the characters. So, you know, you'd, you'd have like the comedian saying, you know, the American dream came true. You're looking at looking it. At you it. Know, right? Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. Uh, Classic. Rorschach's was a a modified quote from a serial killer. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Ror- Rorschach's quote? quote is something along the lines of, I wish all the scum in the world had a single neck and I had my hands around it. Oh. And that is uh, that is something, I believe his name, we'll get into the true crime thing here, but uh, <laughs> Carl Panzeram, who was a oh. complete fucking monster. Like, yeah. One of the... You know, <laughs> like, a little bit. Yeah, really, really, really terrible dude. But he alleged, oh, if I recall correctly, that. he... There was like a, well, he was on death row. There was like a letter cam- writing campaign to like, mm. you know, spare him the death, mm-hmm. like an anti-death penalty group, you know, wrote him mm-hmm. letters and he wrote them back. I wish you all had one neck so I could choke you all. On the wow. That's uh, wild. Okay. Did not know that. Yeah. So that's a, that's a 
fun little bit of trivia. Heavy know. quotations, but sure. <laughs> notice I laugh uncomfortably a lot when talking about this comic book um, because it especially is Especially Rorschach. Yeah, like, it is. There's a lot of uh, trauma. A lot of yeah. trauma there. But yeah, so that that's sort of like his his origin point is that mm-hmm. he is this like an extremely maladjusted person and then mm-hmm. he winds up becoming a vigilante in response to what he believes mm-hmm. is a remote connection to a famous murder case is like he's right. uh working as a he's working as like a laborer in the garment industry and this fancy new dress gets returned that is made Mm -hmm. of this strange you know two it's basically two layers of latex with a black uh viscous fluid in between Mm -hmm. that he uh you know is immediately like fascinated by it because the person who returned it you know this woman who returned it said that you know she thought it was ugly but he was like transfixed by it so he takes Mm -hmm. it home and quote cuts it up until it doesn't look like a woman anymore yeah <laughs> oh man that line he, I, that really stuck with me that oh. line because it's like if you want to see the mommy issues come into play <laughs> there it is where <laughs> yes. it didn't look like a woman anymore like that's interesting that you had to call that out yes well Woof. and that and that, <laughs> that remains like his his like raging misogyny remains oh, yeah. this perpetual part of his persona absolutely um, yeah but that um, you know, there is this, like, also kind of twisted chivalry. Mm. Yeah, in a weird way, yeah. Like, in not not in the sense of wanting to disfigure clothing so that it doesn't resemble <laughs> the female form, um, mm. but that he <laughs> believes that the dress he received belonged to Kitty Genovese. Mm-hmm. Um, I think yeah. I'm pronouncing her name right. I'm, I it, think that's, yeah, that's how I read it. Yeah, um, but she, so she was a real woman. Um, who was, you know, tragically, really horrifically murdered mm-hmm. um, in New York City. And f- very famously, in the first reports of her murder, it was said that there were, like, dozens of witnesses. She was killed outside her apartment building, and no one intervened. And some people even just, like, stood there watched. and watched. Like, they didn't yeah. they didn't it's call the cops. You know, some of them turned off the lights in their in their apartments so they could see out into the alley better and Rorschach when he hears this it's like so horrifying to him it completely changes his his view of the world and Mm -hmm. so he has that big moment where he takes the remains of the dress and he fashions them into a face he isn't ashamed to look at in the mirror yeah and that's like That is the start of this guy becoming a vigilante is that Mm -hmm. he is so filled with revulsion for like humankind. (laughs) Yeah, for humankind, you know. Yeah, essentially. And and it is interesting that it is like it is in response to a terrible thing happening to, you know, a woman, right? Like Mm -hmm. that he's an awful guy. Well, I can't even use the term like awful guy to describe Rorschach because I feel sad for him more than anything. He else. is a broken person, I will say that. And honestly, I think he is borderline, if not fully sociopathic. Like yes. it's his his life and his upbringing definitely molded him to be the way he is. Um, not that that's an excuse. There are lots of people who come from trauma and do not turn out that way. <laughs> right. It's the old excuse or what is it? Explanation, not excuse. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, yeah, sociopathic for sure. And a lot of misogyny issues. 
Oh, yeah. yeah. And just that he has this, like, he, he's an interesting character because he's so driven, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I may have mentioned this a little bit before, but he is, like all the characters, he is an adaptation of uh, the Charlton action heroes that DC mm. had acquired. Right. He was uh, created by Steve Ditko of Spider-Man fame. Um, yeah. I believe Alan Moore actually explicitly said they called him Walter Kovacs. Because Steve Ditko was famous for loving to have K names in his stories. Interesting. Um, which okay. Which I think had to do with Ditko's last name was Ditko, you know, cool. which is such an yeah. interesting sound. That is an um, interesting name, yeah. But yeah, so he was heavily inspired by uh, one nice. of my other favorite comic book characters, The Question, alias Vic Sage, who is a, Ooh, nice. is a crusading investigative journalist um, who naturally, because it's comic books, of course. also... Has a cool, um, he has this like cool special mask he can wear that makes him look like he doesn't have a face and like changes. He has this mysterious gas that lets him change the color of his clothes. And he basically, you know, goes out and sneaks around and finds, you know, dirt on on bad guys and stuff. And he he has no superpowers. He has no like. He's got gadgets. (laughs) Well, he didn't even have, like, he's not even like Batman. Like, he doesn't have, you know how Batman has like. He's just rich. (laughs) Yeah, he's he's superpowers. He's rich, right? (laughs) Yeah. The question is like upper middle class at best. (laughs) Okay. Kind of broke. Um, (laughs) I relate to that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that's the thing, right? And then Mm, um, he's this character who's been reinterpreted, you know, a million times um but the the main power that he has like the main thing that steve ditko really imbued this character with is the idea that he has this unbelievably ferocious sense of integrity oh interesting um and it's you know uh a big part of alan moore's reaction to all of that is like steve ditko was very heavily influenced by ayn rand um whoops (laughs) (laughs) although he's his interpretation of it is very interesting. It would, yeah. If they ever make a question series, we can, uh, like TV we show. Can we can chat about that. D- Ooh, wouldn't that, that be but, interesting? Mm. Um, so I think that's something that Moore was coming to with this character was the idea mm-hmm. of like writing somebody he profoundly disagreed with, mm. but could not help but acknowledge that there was a sort of a heroic quality, not necessarily to his beliefs, but to the sincerity of his belief. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I like At least that. that's my interpretation of it. But I'm, I'm no, curious I like what that. you, because, you know, I'm, I'm a dude. I don't <laughs> think of myself as a misogynist. I'm a dude. He's a dude. <laughs> She's a dude. We're all dudes. Hey, yeah. sorry. <laughs> yeah. but, but like, I, I am curious about your sort of sort of take of on uh, spending so much time inside this guy's head who like truly despises women and yet is still one of our big protagonists of this story like yeah yeah that's a great question um gosh his his character is definitely one of the more intriguing ones not only visually like we were kind of talking about before mm-hmm. but definitely from like a social aspect of it that i i don't know like it, it's interesting that like the the mask that he wears, it, he doesn't refer to it as his disguise. He refers to it as his face, right? Which I think is amazing to like. You know, he gets to a certain point in his um, vigilante career, if you will, where he he says that he's you know putting on the the mask and he's you know pretending to be a vigilante 
as Rorschach, but then he hits a case that is so horrific yes. and just shatters the the remaining hope he has for humanity. And then he really assumes the role of Rorschach from then on out. And so he believes that, you know, his his costume, if you will, is him pretending to be a homeless person with a right. like the end is nigh sign. And he walks around without the mask on, right? And I love that. I I love that interpretation of somebody who resonates more with somebody with no face rather than somebody who has a face but is faceless to society because people walk by homeless people all the time oh, and yeah. don't even register that they're there. They like act like they're not even there. They're invisible. But he resonates more with a person who legitimately has no face. You never see his face. So the people that he works with that are after the Minutemen, they don't know what he looks like either. Right. So it's it's oh, it's a fascinating concept. And I, I, I love how Alan Moore wrote that character. Well, and it's a, it's one of those things that's like it's showed up with a lot of other, you know, superhero characters. Like it's something that gets it gets played with with uh, the Batman mm-hmm. universe a lot. You know, there's a mm-hmm. lot of these ones where it's like well is he really bruce wayne or is he really batman or is he somewhere in between yeah but yeah, it totally. is it is really interesting i think you made a good point about how his disguise isn't sexy billionaire bruce wayne who's <laughs> yeah. you know living this sweet life but deep down inside he's a he's crusading a you know avenging guy <laughs> it's like no the the secret identity for him i think in part because how, you know how the hell is rorschach going to maintain a job but the, oh god like, no the secret yeah. identity for him is he doesn't care he doesn't mm-hmm. care what you you know like he could give a fuck yeah, like, <laughs> like like he does and that even like you said like i think it's actually i think there's probably a strategic level to it that like nobody notices him so yeah he can he's invisible no matter around, where yeah know. it's it's also i just this made me think of it it's like he has more attention granted it's not great attention but he has more attention as rorschach than his you know we'll call him his civilian clothes yes. right so like the cop he's wanted by the cops and he, he walked like, by them several times oh yes and like, he does it with also with um dan and uh dan and Lori. Lori as yeah. well they're walking they walk right by him don't even register that it's him and you're like oh my god because like <laughs> as the reader you realize that it is him but nobody else does and it's it's kind of a, a awesome way to to depict depict a character who knows what's going on and is in all these different facets of the story and he's also kind of the narrator because you're seeing his journal entries so he's like superimposed all over the place so even though he might not be the focus at the time in whatever you know section of the edition you're reading like if it is a Lori and Dan storyline they still insert him in there because you see him in the background. Yes. It's it's pretty clever. I really enjoy it. It is interesting that like he is, uh, like you said, that's a a really good point that he is functionally the narrator because his journal becomes like the key object, you know, Mm -hmm. of the, that sort of encapsulates the whole story. Yeah. So that's a, you know, that's a really interesting aspect of that character. Um, I'm trying to think of what else to say about him because there's a million things you can say I know. about him. Like, yeah, his. Uh, I I th- I think one of my something I noticed about his character was how because of his very very strong distinction of he believes his face is Rorschach's face mm. that really creates a huge barrier for him to have any connection, and the only person that he has a connection to legitimately is Dan. Yes, and I I love that. 
Which is, it is a really interesting thing. Like, so with you you mentioning that, like, you know, the whole thing that Rorschach is his face. Rorschach is Mm -hmm. who he truly is. And like, um, you know, and then, and that it's this recurring thing that he has kind of a blank expression on his physical face whenever he's not wearing his mask. Right. But that there's a, there's an interesting, like, uh, contrast with Dan where, the night owl isn't who he like truly is, but it is this mm-hmm. force within him like that. You mm-hmm. there's a, in um, a brother to dragons. I think there is a section where you literally see Dan from the perspective of his goggles. Oh yeah. And there's like yeah. repeated kind of panels that are just focusing on the empty costume. And it almost seems like the costume itself is this creature like watching him you know, being like, come on, yeah. buddy, you want to do it. You know come you want to put it on. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a cool uh, shot. Yeah. And obviously for, for Dan, it's a lot of stuff to do with like his insecurities, his sexual desires, you know, versus like Rorschach. I think it truly is a persona thing. Like it truly is mm-hmm. his, like his core identity is this faceless, you know, black and white creature. And it, it I would be remiss not to mention I love that he is, as described in the comic, a runt. Uh, I know. <laughs> like I know. That, that he's like, he's not a big guy. No, he's, he's like, what, 5'4 and like 170 pounds or something? He's itty bitty. And he wears, but, you know, he's pure muscle, right? And he, mm-hmm. like, wears lifts and a padded coat. And that is actually a trope that Steve Ditko was really fond of. Uh, he, okay. he repeatedly had these like uh, he had like a Spider-Man villain who was this character called the big figure who's like this giant, you know, the big figure. Yeah, he's, he's like this <laughs> super giant, original. Uh, uh, he's like a mobster guy, but he wears like a scary face mask, you know, and then it turns oh, no, out when he gets face. Spider-Man beats him up and it's like, oh, it's just this dude wearing like a padded jacket. and lifts. That's and amazing. Like, I love that. Uh, yeah, so, so that's a, it's an interesting thing that it's like, I think it's, I don't, I don't even think it's compensation. Like, that's not what I would call it. I would call it like, just as the mask is how he truly sees himself, like being this bigger creature is also how he sees himself. And honestly, how everybody else sees him until he's yeah. you know, beat up and stripped down. Yeah, like, people don't want to mess with him. He really is a force to be reckoned with. And I think... A lot of his allure, I guess you could say, to his mm-hmm. character is that he doesn't have to be this huge beefcake of a guy, right? Yeah. He doesn't have to be Bane, where he's gigantic and right. ripped, and, and yet he is still, yeah, like the strong man kind of thing. He doesn't have to be that physique, but at the same time, he's resourceful, he can handle himself, and he's also very intelligent, even though he's very like socially inept in a lot of ways. But he is very intelligent and very perceptive, and he's good at reading people because he's had to do this for his entire life, you can tell. So he uses all of those things to his advantage, regardless of his size. Which yeah, is very it's cool. interesting. He is very much, you know, uh, uh, blindingly obviously, given how he's dressed, right? Trench coat and fedora and all that. Mm-hmm. He is very much like playing off of that uh, kind of the detective hero archetype. Yeah. 
it is interesting that like that is clearly a character type that Moore really loves because he's written like 20 of them. <laughs> I know, so many. And, and, it's um, a classic visual though. Oh it yeah, is. well, and it, mm-hmm. and I think it conjures this, you know, in, particularly in American pop culture, like it is our equivalent of the like knight errant, you know, mm-hmm. like it is our equivalent of this like kind of crusader, this guy who's out on a quest. And yeah. often, you know, the challenge will be moral as well as physical. Mm-hmm. And Rorschach being in that position and that he is the one who is slowly unraveling this conspiracy. And it's interesting that, like, he is more or less wrong all, like, at every conclusion. Mm. Yes. And yet his doggedness <laughs> still reveals the truth. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah. He has a really sideways view of things, which is not always on par with what, what is actually going on or what your kind of normal, quote, very heavy normal person would kind of perceive. Yeah. But he is the only person who really actively is pursuing, like, he knows there's a conspiracy. Granted, he is a little paranoid, but he's not wrong either. So it's Doesn't like... Doesn't mean they're not actually coming for me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, his character is like a paranoid, like, film noir character, which yeah. I kind of love. Like, oh, it is yeah. a very film noir vibe. Well, yeah, um, and it's it's just... It's funny that he's like, well, and he kind of is right in the end because he keeps. He, he is keeps totally right. He's at, He's like, just a little manic. Yeah. <laughs> well, he keeps saying, you know, he thinks that there's a mask killer. Like he thinks that there is someone deliberately targeting superheroes who's, you know, some crazy person bent on revenge. And it turns out there is somebody trying to wipe out the superheroes, yep. but it's not because he wants revenge. It's because he wants to save the world. in a weird twisted way yeah twisted way which you know go figure there's not a there's basically like there's maybe one character in the whole series who's like morally pure and it's poor old night owl number one (laughs) hollis yeah yeah Um, i think we already kind of talked about hollis that he's just kind of milk toast yeah no he's He's just just, kind of a milk toast guy yeah he's just a guy he's trying to do what's right he's he's Mm -hmm. not He's not going to achieve much. <laughs> He's going to do his best. But God love him, he tried. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you know, like, I, yeah, like you said, like, I think there's a reason. There's a reason, obviously, for all of Rorschach's characteristics. And, like, um, Moore has repeatedly said, like, he has some very famous quotes. And we'll, we can get into more and more later. More and mm-hmm. more later. More and more. Um, but, uh, you know, that. <laughs> That after the series was a big hit, like he he claims he was surprised that so many people identified with Rorschach. He claims really? that. I mean, he made him practically the focal point. I don't know how that would have been a surprise. I know, and it's it's <laughs> oh, like well. what what I have my own perspectives on dear old Alan. I think he Mr. sometimes Alan. he likes to say things that will get a rise out of people, oh, and he also just it's a bit like how. Uh, Whenever George Lucas is in an interview, he always says, you know, oh, I always intended for there to be six movies and a character called Jar Jar. And, you know, it's like there's literally (laughs) records of him saying, oh, yeah, I wrote one movie and I kind of, you know, we kind of winged the rest. (laughs) Um but I totally meant it the whole time, <laughs> yeah. obviously. But so with with Rorschach, with more, you know, he's he talks about how he like gave him all these unappealing characteristics, you know, like he 
He's this smelly weirdo who, like, doesn't have any romantic, you know, interest in his life, doesn't really get along with anybody. And then, you know, Moore gets his little dig in where he's like, but I didn't realize that to a lot of comic book fans, that's actually kind of heroic. You're right in a weird way. I love it. He's not wrong. Yeah, absolutely. There is a little bit of kind of... mm, not romance to it, but there is a little bit of like a draw to that kind of a character where that is what it, you know society would look like if you stripped away the compassion and the empathy. Yes. Well, I think it is. I think he is not an aspirational character. Like, I think the only mm, characteristic mm-hmm. you might take from him that to aspire towards is like courage and resourcefulness but that's definitely like, resourcefulness you know, which which are good traits um yeah. but but not when you're a sociopath yeah not when you're a sociopath not when you're you know it's snapping random combo. people's fingers on the street as like, you do you know, you know. like not, none of that um but so yeah. he has all of these traits that are deliberately to take away as much of his mystique as possible that's and, the word mystique yep i love it love and yet it. as you said like his isolation kind of becomes its own allure not Mm -hmm. again not in the aspirational sense not in the you know Mm -hmm. uh but it not not in the i want to be like this guy sense but in the sense of like he is undeniably fascinating like he is yeah i dare you to say you find him actively boring like i know a lot i've known a lot of people who don't like him like i've known a lot of people who you know but is it because he's boring or because he's immoral those are two different things right right (laughs) he's a crazy man he's a very dangerous weirdo but um, yeah yeah so that character is so interesting and like Mm -hmm. in particular i always get choked up at his ultimate fate i know (laughs) unfortunately he does meet his demise at the end because he weirdly enough is the only person who actually wants to like tell the public that the gigantic squid that drops on new york city was all a plan by ozymandias to stop world war three from happening so it was you know kill a a couple million people to save a billion people right. you know i mean it was like they it's the greater good essentially which is a very messed up we'll get into that <laughs> yeah but it's a very messed up thought process but he's like the people deserve to know and then dr manhattan is like i can't let you do that because you could restart world war three and he basically just like obliterates him he yeah just explodes. well well, and it is this, you know, yeah. it is a, it is a big moment tragic. that, like, R- Rorschach realizes that, like, Dr. Manhattan's going to try and re- reason with him, and it's not going to work. So he just starts, nope. scr- you know, saying, oh, yeah, just one do body, do it. Do and it. Like, yeah. And, what? and he takes off his mask. Yes. That's the thing is, it's not Rorschach saying it. He takes off his mask. Like, you get to look me in the face, and you get to kill me as a person, not as Rorschach, as a person, which right. I was like, Oh, tingles, <laughs> tingles that ending. It is a good, yeah, it it's is a wild. good, good, he's a, he's a great, he's a fascinating character. Um, he is if Batman were not rich. <laughs> yes, that is well put. That is, the, he, if he Batman is didn't have all the money, <laughs> that is what Batman would be. Like, Let's be real here, folks. You know, he, Minus all the gadgets and maybe just, uh, what what does he have? He has like he's, just he's a- He's got a uh, grappling hook. A grappling hook. That's, That's it. That's his it. only gadget. Which is which is more than enough for him. You know, I, I might have mentioned earlier that uh, that famous uh, SWAT assault team in Fearful Century. Yeah. 
Yeah. One of the best sequences in a comic book. Like, <laughs> like yeah. I cannot, you know, I cannot read that scene without being like, yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, oh, totally. And, it, and I think it does, like, it does reinforce, obvi- obviously, you know, these, this whole thing. It's not, it's not a grounded universe. Or, or you might say it's a grounded universe, but it's not a realistic mm-hmm. universe. But, um, you know, the whole thing of you see in that sequence where he takes on the SWAT team and, like, almost escapes, you know? Like, he almost, he's Yeah, he's very close. But yeah. like a like a that cornered is an epic rat, scene. he will he will chew through flesh to you know get out. Yeah, um, merciless fight style, which is again we go back to resourceful. Yes, right. It is not pretty. It is not like right. It's not hardcore trained, but it's resourceful, which is his whole kind of well, and I package. Think been, I think you might have mentioned um, he's been in survival mode his whole life. You oh know, yeah, like absolutely, and you can see it. He has basically never had anybody to rely on, so he has to rely on himself. And that in that sequence, like you see that, and you also see why everyone's so terrified of the of the superheroes. Like why, even though Doctor Manhattan's the only one with actual power, these characters themselves are so capable that it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, in real life, it would be pretty terrifying to find. That would out, be terrifying. You know, uh, mm-hmm. Mr. Squidgy Face or whatever, you know, has managed to <laughs> wipe out a SWAT team and escape. Um, yeah, although, totally. I don't know. Um, or do we want to talk a little bit about his dynamic with Dan? A little bit? Yeah. Yeah, we can um, talk about it a little bit. Because I do mm-hmm. think there's a... Yeah, well, there's something very interesting, like, as far as... Um, and I might be repeating myself a bit here, but, like, there's something very interesting as far as how, like... His friendship with Dan is basically the only positive relationship he's had. Yeah, and absolutely. That's why he is so unbelievably bitter about Dan quitting. You know? Yeah, <laughs> like, like yeah, that's totally. Why there's this incredible resentment that he feels because, like, you know, Night Owl was his partner, and like. There's mm-hmm. a, there's a very like jealous ex vibe going. Oh my god, on. yeah, <laughs> yeah, because they have that scene where Rorschach breaks into Dan's apartment, and then they go down into the you know the owl cave, we'll call it. Yeah, yeah. And they talk about you know they're kind of reminiscing a little bit, and he's like, yeah, like Dan's like, those are good times. What happened? He's and he's like, you quit. <laughs> like. <laughs> yeah. He was so blunt, and he's like, "Yeah, you left this. You're welcome." Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it's absolutely one of those things, and, and yeah. it's interesting that repeatedly you see throughout their their adventure together is like they do reminisce repeatedly about like the good times, you know? Yeah, and he doesn't do this with anybody else. I mean, he sees Laurie and he sees Doctor Manhattan, and he visits um not Hollis, but he visits Moloch, who is another kind of like right. vi- yeah, villain, the, the old villain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he visits a lot of people from like the old times i guess um and he doesn't reminisce with any of them except for dan and he i think one of my favorite parts with him and dan is right before he it's well it's not right before he dies but it's kind of a sequence before they go to antarctica to find yeah. osmantius's lair but he he does comment while they're on um the archimedes ship that he's like you know i'm I know that I'm difficult to work oh, with. Oh, yeah. That's such and a I, hard... Yeah, it's like a really sweet moment. Where he's And he's not wearing his mask. So yeah. this is like a big thing where he's talking to him as a person, not as Rorschach for the, like, for the first time, really. And he's like, I, I understand that I am difficult to work with and I appreciate your friendship, that's essentially. The, that's and the lead up to the handshake, right? 
Yes, the big, the, the big handshake. iconic. <laughs> the handshake. Which I, I think he is in his outfit by the point they actually do the handshake, but it's this famous. Mm-hmm. It's quite funny, um, but it's this famous panel where they like shake hands, and Rorschach literally won't let go of Dan's it's Just hand. like it holds on a little you too know? long. <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, of course, like there's there's all there's all different interpretations of that. Mm, <laughs> saucy, maybe. Mm. You know, there there might be a little bit more than a purely platonic uh, affection mm. that Rorschach feels for, but yeah, well, and it's it's also one of those things where like my my personal interpretation of the character, I would say in, you know, in modern discussions of orientation, I would say he's probably asexual. Mm. Um, yeah, but, that checks out. But you know, I think it's a pure, it's a perfectly valid interpretation that he's also like a closeted gay guy with a lot yeah. of issues. A lot of <laughs> like, so many I think, issues. I think basically the the most sum up you can say about Rorschach and sexuality is, regardless of what his orientation is, he is a mess. <laughs> he is a <laughs> like, hot mess. Hot uh, mess. Yeah, I feel like his sexuality is the least of his problems. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's on there. It's on the list. It's the, it's the <laughs> cherry on the top of the fucked up cake. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Isn't it just? <laughs> um, yeah, but so that that scene is pretty great and, and quite funny. Yeah, so I don't I don't know. Like there's and it is it is interesting, like you pointed out, that he dies because of his devotion to the truth. And his yeah. devotion to the truth may outlive him. Like that may, he may wind up with the ultimate victory. Obviously, his yeah. fate is ambiguous. The fate of the journal um, that he sends to this like underground far right newspaper called the New Frontiersman mm-hmm. that he's like, yeah. he's obsessed with. And it's kind of funny because it's one of these things where like, I think he likes them because they like him. Yeah, they love me. They really love me. They're basically the only people who like advocate for superheroes, and it's because they're like neo fascists. Yay! (laughs) They just like the idea of people going out and you know being like, yeah, go go beat Beat up everybody. Yeah, great. We love that. Yeah, so that is a fascinating way, and that's how the the graphic novel ends. Is that you see that he has dropped his. Um, he has delivered his diary to that newspaper company. Right. And they're like, we need to go to the crank file and see what's in the crank file to just print anything. Right. And, and then they it... they show at the very end that it's it's his diary. And I was like, oh, you're in for a wild ride, my friend. Yeah. And in particular, <laughs> it's the poor old intern who is, of I course, know. you know, he's this kind of tubby guy and he's wearing a, he's wearing a smiley face T-shirt and some of his, the ketchup from his burger uh-huh. has splattered on the smiley face to look Great like the comedian's bad imagery. Great um, imagery. That's a uh, human bean juice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah, it's a classic way to end that. It's a great ending. Oh yeah, yeah. Just I could I, I could do three whole podcast episodes just talking about every page of Rorschach's story. Oh my god. <laughs> Seriously though, he really is like the kind of clinchpin of the whole yes. series in a lot of ways, for sure. But uh, there is a last fascinating character uh, before from the the source material. Yes, um, the fellow who, in an act of incredible irony, decided <laughs> to name himself after a famous poem about a brutal tyrant whose fate is to be forgotten forever, and whose whose on all his works come to ruins. 
Woo-hoo! Adrian Veidt, alias Ozymandias. Ozymandias. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, I, what a what a way to pick that name. <laughs> yeah, well, Interesting choice. Well, it is one of those things where it's like, I know Alan Moore picked that name for the poem. He wants to conjure up the poem for you. Absolutely. You know, right? like that's, that was very, very deliberate. But at the same time, it is one of those things where I just have to suspend my disbelief. Like I just have to, <laughs> I just have to, you know, it, it would be like somebody calling themselves Dr. Hubris you know, or <laughs> Captain, I will fall to the dark side. You know? <laughs> like, what will happen to him? I have no idea. You know, it's, it's almost like a medieval morality play or something, but. Um, Dr. Foreshadowing. Yeah, Dr. Foreshadowing. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, so I don't know. I, I've been uh, I've been given my spiel about a lot of these characters, but why don't you mm. uh, you take the lead? I'm curious about what you think of Ozymandias. Ooh, and, uh... Ozymandias is another fascinating character. I think of like the top people in the graphic novel that I really kind of love to dissect a little bit more is Rorschach, Doctor Manhattan, and Ozymandias mm. because. They, all three of them, the one kind of thread they have in common with each other is that they see society and the decisions around society and like just making the world a a better place, if you will. The way that they interpret that is so different than everybody else. Yes. Well, because all the other other characters besides the three of them, like actually have a very limited view of this, of the vigilante thing, like for... The Silk Spectres, it's about mm-hmm. money and legacy for mm-hmm. Night Owl, it's about thrills, you know, mm-hmm. right? But then yeah. for those for those three, it's like they genuinely well, Dr. Manhattan doesn't want to solve society's problems, but he is aware mm-hmm. in a very distinct way versus Yeah, like, he's a little more stepped back for, you know, obvious reasons of like his transformation, like he is mentally unable to connect on a certain level so that's a little bit different but it is that it is that same thing of like an ambivalence towards the activity itself like there's no yeah drive there versus like Vite. it's it's interesting that ozymandias even becomes a, a superhero at all yeah you know? <laughs> like yeah like, it's very interesting and i think yeah and i think part of it is because in that world there's this idea that the superheroes have had this incredible impact on culture Mm-hmm. And, you know, he he confesses early on that he always had a fascination with Alexander the Great. You know, like he has all these paintings in his palace of Alexander the Great. And go figure, Alexander the Great happens to look exactly like him. You know? What? <laughs> like, um, so I think Amazing. there is this, like, I think Vite is fascinating because he is like very much a capital G capital M great man like mm-hmm. he is fully bought into that idea yeah um, totally and that i think he has these repeated like statements of humility and i suspect it's a false humility oh totally like i think i agree like, completely i don't think you run around in gold spandex and a, and a circlet you know because and, you and like purple capes for like royalty coloring yeah, yeah. exactly like it's i don't very think you, flashy. you dress like a, a gym king <laughs> 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 because you have you have such a low sense of yourself but i think let's it's more of a gym king slash toga party <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> 
<laughs> Which is very, like, uh, it's funny because he is basically wearing like 1980s workout attire. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I love it so much. Um, <laughs> but it is that thing where I think, you know, he, he repeatedly makes these statements where like, uh, you know, the comedian makes fun of him by being saying like, oh yeah, and you're the smartest man on the planet. And Veidt's like, I never claimed to be the smartest man on the planet. I just know how to apply my intel. You know, like he says something like that. And I think it's, I think it is because humility is a quality of a great man as opposed mm-hmm. to because he's genuine, because he genuinely feels, you know, a true sense of egalitarianism with everybody else. Mm-hmm. Like, like, I don't think yeah. he would never launch his plan, you know, if he wasn't certain that he was the only person capable of doing it. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. so he is, uh, he is the closest thing the series has to a villain as far as being the one who's launching a plot to kill millions of people and murders tons of innocent people along the way but he's Mm -hmm. trying to save the world it's like this weird necessary evil thing yes yeah it's like a combination of he is doing something for the greater good slash it is his hubris to think that he is the only person who can think of a plan and execute a plan that would actually save the greater good and also that moral compass, and I think that's really a really key factor throughout a lot of Alan Moore's work is that the moral compass, depending on who you're talking to or who's just like talking at the time, it can so drastically shift. And it's just fascinating to see how they rationalize yes. what they do for morality. And Rorschach's the same kind of thing where the stuff that he does is his moral compass in a weird, obscure way. <laughs> and it's really messed up. And you're like, that is not a moral, like a moral thing right, but that from most his, people would do. You know, right. Like from his perspective, mm-hmm. he, you know, he yeah. would say like, no, no, it's totally normal to. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, exactly. It, and it's the same kind of rationale with, you know, Dr. Manhattan is on board with Ozymandias' decision that he's like, you know what? You're absolutely right. This is the only way to stop a nuclear holocaust from occurring worldwide. Yeah, is to to fake this massive interdimensional invasion. Yeah, alien attack. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Ooh, so yeah, like I, I think, He's he's interesting, uh, Veit. So he, I've I've tried to kind of call out some of the the characters who were the source material. So he is mm-hmm. inspired by a character, or he's sort of adapted from a character whose name was, I think his name was Peter Cannon, Thunderbolt. Peter Cannon. <laughs> oh my God, that's a name. And I love it. That character's <laughs> shtick was that he was one of those guys. He was one of those types who like goes and finds a hidden monastery up in the Himalayas or something like that. You know, there's a million of those. And he, through, like, these physical processes and obscure studies, unlocks the fullness of human potential, you know? So he, sure. quote-unquote, uses 100% of his brain. You know, right? Wow, he's like, one of those guys. Yeah. All right, um, smarty pants. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I think it is, it is this cool thing that, like, technically... Ozzy is not superhuman, but no, he's just really smart and has the funds. Yeah, well, and he, but he is at the maximum level of physical capability. Like he can catch a Mm -hmm. bullet, you know, which is one of which is pretty impressive. That is a really badass scene. Yeah, Yeah, Laurie shoots him, and then he does this crazy little flip, yeah, and then catches the bullet, and you're like, whoop, (laughs) which is (laughs) you're not dead. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, which is a a Mm -hmm. nightmarish, you know, little sequence right there. Um, Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah, I, it's crazy ending. I love that. I love that scene of him uh, wiping the floor with uh, poor old Night Owl and Rorschach when oh, they come to stop I him. Oh, I know. Like, Just beats the shit out well, of him. It, They're like, "Hello, boys." Oh, and it is such a <laughs> it is such a great like iconic image. They they try to go for a sneak attack because they both know, you know. Oh yeah, they Ozzy know fully better, what he's capable of. And uh, and so they try to go for the sneak attack, and he immediately like disarms them and then beats mm-hmm. them both and basically has them like pinned in a position where they're both kneeling in front of him yeah <laughs> which is Classic. such an image right it's a great image like, there's a lot of really amazing images with him like i think one of my favorite images that is a very classic one that you see a lot is him sitting in his chair with his like crazy hybrid cat thing that he made <laughs> yeah, what and the fuck all is of the no. yeah and all of the big tvs oh. like there's like hundreds of tvs in front of him all showing different channels because he's just like watching them all with the the world news yes and it's like iconic iconic scenes with him it's it's impressive right, that he for can, sure he can upset and it's it's a fun little thing that's actually shown in in his backstory is you see him while he's talking about his early career there is a panel that's him sitting in his apartment with three tv sets and a cat <laughs> foreshadowing yeah. well yeah which I, I just thought it was funny that like that's been this guy's thing throughout his whole life as he built that's his favorite his pastime you know? watching tv with his kitty yeah i can totally relate to Look, that he's not a character completely <laughs> devoid of sympathetic characters right you know? right and also like his hubris of his character too you see a lot of it he's like well i wouldn't say i'm the smartest person in the world but then he also like in his office and on his desk you see all of the little figurines of yes. him so he's got all of his little like memorabilia and like um, tchotchkes and stuff of him as a superhero figurine and stuff and it's so there's obviously some very much like pride and hubris around the fact that he is a um he's a watchman who has come out in the open with his identity so he is both void or er, er, vite and Oz- yeah he is ozymantius and everybody knows it so it's it's very interesting to see he definitely has the hubris and the money and the power, but then he also is still trying to think of the best outcome for humanity. Yes. It's it's fascinating. Yeah, he's a he's a cool character. Like I, lots of layers. I do have to say. So we haven't I don't think we've really talked about the pirate comic. No. Not at all. So yeah. the so throughout Watchmen there is that pirate comic that keeps getting intercut. And it's mm-hmm. the story of a man who is like the survivor of an of an attack by these demonic pirates. Yeah. And he becomes fixated on the idea that they're going to attack his hometown. So he mm-hmm. literally scrapes together a raft floated by the corpses of his dead crewmen. And a dead shark. And a dead shark. You know, like you're, you're watching this like incredible <laughs> endurance thing. And he like finally gets to the town and he's already convinced like there's no way he beat the pirates there. So he like sees this young couple out on the shore and he murders the two of them because he's like, oh, they must be traitors, you know. And he goes to his home and he's like, I'm going to find who killed my wife and I'm going to I'm going to take him out, you know. And he like mm-hmm. bursts into his house in the middle of the night. He grabs the first person he can see and starts throttling them. And then he hears his children screaming and realizes he's attacking his own wife. Wife, yeah. He sees pirates and starts just trying to annihilate everybody. Yeah, and And so he family he flees and realizes that the pirates are waiting in the bay for him, and that they never wanted to attack. You know, like they wanted him to join. Fascinating story, right? 
doesn't yeah, obviously doesn't need to be there, <laughs> right. but it's there and doesn't it's genius. Doesn't obviously connect to this to the rest of the comic until mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. Uh, notice that in one of the last sequences, when Ozymandias is talking to Doctor Manhattan after the plans you know gone off and he succeeded. Mm-hmm. And he confesses that he still feels really troubled about it. And he says, I keep having this dream where I am swimming towards a massive black. Never mind. It's not Uh, significant. Yeah. (laughs) I do. Like, wait a second. Yeah. And that's how the pirate comic ends is he's swimming to the uh to a black to the ship. black freighter um mm-hmm. and so Ooh, yeah alan moore i mean word of god as much as you know as much as like word of god versus death of the author you know as much as you want to interpret what mm-hmm. the creators say about these things alan moore has said that he considers the pirate comic to be vite's story you know Ooh, like he has said that he that is how he sees it is that it is the story of a guy who is not wrong that danger exists in the world, but mm-hmm. has become so fixated on his fear that he has become as bad as the things he's trying to stop. Yeah. Other big Ooh. part, a little, little bit of trivia, fun trivia that I Ooh. love. I, I think I, I might have hinted at this earlier, but there is Ooh. a reference to the... Uh, Late 1950s, early 1960s science fiction anthology series, The Outer Limits, in Ooh, particular. Good one. There, mm-hmm. it, uh, you, there's a little ad at the end for, or a little teaser at the end for an episode called The Architects of Fear. Ooh. And the story of The Architects of Fear is about a group of scientists terrified of nuclear annihilation. So mm. they decide to fake an alien attack. By oh surgically God. modifying one of their member to look like this horrible alien <gasps> man and having him oh like land in a fake spaceship and like attack people. And uh, Ooh, so it's, gross. Love it. So it's one of these things that ap- apparently Alan hmm. Moore said that he had, f- he either hadn't seen the episode or had seen it and forgotten, but he realized it was so similar that he had to include an homage to cover his butt. And okay. Other people, yeah, that's very similar. Yeah, well, and other people have said that. Other people yeah, sure. have expressed doubt. Like other people have yeah, said, Alan realized after the fact because that is a thing that Whoopsie. happens. You know, like you're, yeah, you're, you pull inspiration, not realizing where that inspiration came from. Oh yeah, is actually like yeah. Um, yeah. Um, there's a famous uh, X Men plotline, the Days of Future Past, that mm-hmm. the the head writer, I think it was Chris Claremont. Uh, admitted later on, like he'd, he'd been writing it and was like, oh, this is so good. It's like this time travel, you know, intense story about trying to like stop this dark future. And then he realized mm-hmm. it's basically the same plot as an old episode of Doctor Who where the Daleks have oh, taken yeah. over and some, you oh, know, yeah. like. And in some kind of weird ways, also like Back to the Future. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Back to the Future. Obviously. <laughs> one of the great ones. Yeah, obviously. We'll um, pull that in there. <laughs> but yeah, so I think it's, I think it's funny because my, my headcanon for the comic is that Ozymandias also got this idea from an old episode of The Outer Limits that he forgot he watched because yeah. he obsessively watches totally. TV. You know? I love it. So I love like, it. I wouldn't doubt it, honestly. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I think um, we could keep talking about the book forever, but I think we will 
put it down for now and then um, stay tuned for part two, my friends, because then we're actually going to break down the book and then the comparison because there is so much to talk about. We could not fit this into one episode. (laughs) Two-parter. I just two Potter, baby. <laughs> so thank you for sticking it out and stay tuned for next time. And we will finish this convo up. So see you next time, y'all. Um, bye-bye. Never compromise.